Hello and welcome to Media Made, the show in which we year by year explore the movies, music, and TV that most invaded our lives. I'm your host, Rod, and my metachlorians are off the charts. I'm joined by... Jess, Mr. Morgan's TA. <laughs> favorite student. <laughs> I'm his favorite student. I never get kicked out of class. Get, get out. Get out of my class. Get out of my class. Okay. Hello, everybody. Uh, if you're new to the show, let me explain. Jess and I, during the show, we talk movies, music, and TV. Uh, we're doing a movie episode today, and we were talking about the movies of 1999. We are we are partying like it is 1999. What? 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 I didn't do a lot of partying when I was in the actual 1999. Uh, I was a child, but... I was also a child. So what I Jess partied and I, real hard. What we've done is we've looked at a list of every film released in the year 1999, and we've decided which one each of us have watched the most in our lives. Mm-hmm. And we're going to compare them, contrast them, uh, and critique them both. You know, just going to discuss them. Were they good? Were they bad? We'll see. One was good-ish. One was... Bad-ish. Pretty bad. Yes. (laughs) There's no ish. We'll see. Which one are we talking about? Find out uh, as we we talk about them. (laughs) Uh, Because this is a new year, it's 1999, uh, you know, we're a year from the millennium. We've been working our way up to this point. You know, there's been a lot of angst, a lot of anticipation for that that turnover into the new millennium. Mm -hmm. And we've reached it, 1999. It's the big finale. Woo! Uh, <laughs> I was like trying to think like of what stuff went down in 99 and you know there were some national tragedies there were uh, you know some big news items uh, Bill Clinton he's off the hook oh dear um, but like I think 1999 was just the overall tone of 1999 was we made it to the end of the millennium you know so we, <laughs> we did it with only a few bumps and scratches w- one of the th- this is not a movie we're going to talk about today but in the matrix uh, it's set in this pseudo 1999 and the movie frames it as the peak of human existence oh gosh the hu- the peak of human civilization happened in 1999 that you know and it's troubling i'm like so we're in the down peak you know well <laughs> uh, uh, you know it's Absolutely. interesting framing and i'm sitting there going they're not far off <laughs> we had we, that was we had last, it so much better last time you, the u.s had a surplus i'll tell you that well anyway uh, as with every new year on the show, we ask, where were you in the year 1999? I was going into the fifth grade. You double di- double digits. I was 10. I made it to the big one. Oh, yeah. So I was in the fifth grade, not the sixth grade. I mean, I was, I was chilling, uh, reading. reading a book. <laughs> I was chilling, reading a book. Nothing interesting. Literally nothing ever interesting. I went into the second grade. I hate when you do that. <laughs> you know, I was I was in the third grade, grade kids. I was I'm not that much older than him. I may have <laughs> I may have started karate in 1998, but I was certainly in karate in 1999. So that was <laughs> that was going on. Uh, I started liking girls in 1999, probably like Ooh, second grade. Here's a funny story. That's the peak of your humanity. <laughs> Here's a funny story. Uh, I had a crush on my second grade teacher. <laughs> Oh, was she pretty? Yeah, and she was young, but she was also like thinking back. It's like she was a bad teacher. She was the one who told us that the reason that compasses work is because they're magnets <laughs> and they're pointed north because there's a large mineral deposit in Canada that they point to. She's not wrong. She's it's, it's just pure wrong. It's not wrong. It's very wrong. Mm. She misled a lot of kids. Anyway, bad teacher, but I was a little second grader and I thought she was pretty. <laughs> and one time in an attempt to make small talk, I described to her an episode of the Seinfeld I had not seen, but was described to me by a friend. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so adorable. It's like, what do adults like? 
They like Seinfeld. Oh, this is so adorable. <laughs> it's super cringy. Why have you never told me about an episode of, of Seinfeld that you've never... It wouldn't be as cute. It wouldn't be as cute. There's, there's <laughs> an episode where they couldn't get soup on time. Oh, gosh. Or something. <laughs> I haven't seen that. Um, yeah, you know, so... Historically, you're bad at small talk. I am. <laughs> and that's when I learned it, you know? And it's oh, like, you're so adorable. You carry these little stories with you. You're like, oh, it's so cringy. I was so stupid as a oh little kid, you know? And that's one of them. And, mm. you know, this is this is group therapy. I'm telling you all here on this podcast. <laughs> anyway, that's 1999. Oh, we all love Pokemon. Pokemon hit the U.S. Pokemania, it's here. But it was in 1998. Oh, no, it came to us in 1999. It, it, it more or less like hit the mainstream in 1999 here in the U.S. So that's another thing I was doing. Buying a lot of Pokemon cards, trading them, playing Telling them. your friends that your dad had a golden Charizard. Yep. It's, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of cringe moments in 1999, apparently. Peak humanity. Anyway, let's talk about some movies. Mm. So we're going to start off with Jess's movie of 1999. Released March 31st, 1999. Directed by Gil Hunger. Written by Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith. Starring Julia Stiles, Heath Ledger, Larissa Olenek. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That is 10 Things I Hate About You. Okay, here's how we solve this one. Old rule out. New rule. Bianca can date. When she does. But she's a mutant. What if she never dates? Then you'll never date. Oh, I like that. And I'll get to sleep at night. The deep slumber of a father whose daughters aren't out being impregnated. That's, that's the golden rule <laughs> of this family. It's the, it's the thing that sets the whole plot forward. That's true. Ten things I hate about you. So, what is this movie? Why did you uh, Why did you watch it so much? It's a standard teen rom com, um, based on a Shakespearean tale. Sure is. <laughs> Which Shakespearean tale? Taming of the Shrew. The Taming of the Shrew. Yes, it is. It, the, the, we'll talk about it a little later. But this was like the in thing in the late '90s was to adapt a Shakespearean tale. In the form of a 90s rom-com. Teen comedy. There were a lot of 90s teen comedies adapted from Shakespeare. We had I... Ro Romeo plus Juliet. Right. Well, and also there were just random adaptations of classic literature as well. You yeah. Know, your Jane Austen novels. Yeah, we got Clueless. Like uh, we have, uh, which is Emma. We've got, I mean, oh no, there are a slew of Pride and Prejudice things that are like adapted or what is that? Contemporaryized and they are all bad. Have I watched many of them? Yes. And they are not good and I love them. That's not the, that's not the episode today though. No, no. It is uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. 10 Things I Hate About You. Why is it your movie of 1999? 10 Things I Hate... You know, that's a good question. I think that it was just on. I feel like it was on ABC often. I feel like, like, I definitely didn't watch it in 1999. I watched it, year, like, years after. I, I was definitely in junior high school or high school watching this. And probably ju junior high. And I think, I don't know, the first time I watched it, I think I had friends by that time. Definitely junior high. And one of my friends had me watching it. And after watching it, I just, like, really loved the, like the love story and oh. the relationship and oh my gosh love oh it's love i want to kiss a boy covered in pain and hay ew <laughs> no it sounds dirty <laughs> and not in the good way i want to dance drunk to biggie smalls on a table <laughs> can i do that no can i do that here no 
I won't do it on the glass table. <laughs> no. I won't. There won't be a part. I won't invite anyone else. I'll just do it when you're like out shopping. It'll be fine. And so I, I think it was just like when it was just one of those things that I watched a bunch. <laughs> um, probably mostly because it was on. But if I saw it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I like that. Like, I'm going to I'm going to click on it. So for the longest time, I always got this movie confused with how to lose a guy in 10 days. Well, that was very different. I know. I know. But very different age it, groups. You know, 10 days, 10 things. Uh, <laughs> it's a rom-com. I don't see, you know, it didn't interest me in any way. No. I'm not, I, I wasn't big into rom-coms. Okay? That's fair. You know, it just wasn't my thing. I think you might find uh, how to lose a guy in 10 days slightly entertaining. It's like, I don't hate rom-coms when I sit there and watch them, mm -hmm. but like, yeah, I don't, especially when I was young, you know, yeah. when I was freaking seven years old, I didn't want to go out of my way to watch a rom-com <laughs> all the way to like 15, 16, 17, you know? Like, my only rom-coms are Disney rom-coms. And like, so the first time I saw this movie and I only caught the last half of it at a Christmas party when I was working at the first year program at our high or, or at our university. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was working as an English tutor at the university for the first year program and we had a Christmas party and you know, I showed up late cause maybe I had a class or something. Um, you know, so the party was mid going and this movie was just on, you know? Mm. So we were like opening gifts and eating and this movie's on and I'm like, what is this? And <laughs> people are like, Oh, that's just 10 things I hate about you. That's Heath Ledger. That's the guy who, you know, he was in Batman and I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's him as a young man. How about that? Young man. You know, and it like not too long into watching it. You do, you see the, the, the iconic scene where Heath Ledger sings and dances. Yeah. Right. And I was like, Hey, I recognize that because that was parodied in the film in uh, not another teen movie. It surely was. Yes. So there's a, there's a scene in not another teen movie where a character dances on the bleachers of a soccer field, I guess, you know, and he sings, Janie's got a gun <laughs> from, from Aerosmith. And then security then tackles. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, that was not a joke I got, you yeah. know, because I didn't understand the reference. Mm -hmm. So then when you watch this movie, oh, they were making fun of this scene from 10 Things I Hate About Get It. I got it. I got it. And I finished the movie and I thought it was, that was pretty good. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was pretty good. Yeah. So, so and then we watch it here today, you know, for the show. And I'm like, yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That's my story with it. <laughs> Can you name 10 things you hated about it? Oh, we'll get I probably I probably could, <laughs> but uh, I don't think that's necessary. Because uh, maybe for the next there's one, there's more. There's more I love about it than I hate about it. I think ten things I like about you. That's a different. That's a show. What I like about you. Yeah. How come we didn't? Oh, we're not going to close with that song. Oh well. Yeah, we have a better song we're going to close with. <laughs> we could. We, no, it's no, not no. too late. No, no, no. We got a better one. Anyway, let's talk about how this movie was made. Okay. Ten things I hate about you was written by screenwriting duo Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith. Kirsten. Kirsten Smith. The two met in 1996 after Smith, who was at the time director of development at Cinetel Films, read and connected with a script submitted by McCullough. Ah. Uh, McCullough at the time was an aspiring writer living in Denver. The pair formed a friendship over the phone, and when McCullough came to Los Angeles, they met up for margaritas in person. Oh, midnight margaritas. Yes. They began writing their first script together on a cocktail napkin that night. Cute. Did they kiss? No. <laughs> <laughs> They're just business partners. <laughs> that script was never picked up, so the pair began developing a new story together. Seeing the success of 1995's Clueless, a loose modern-day adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma, they knew they wanted to write a teen comedy with a twist on a classic story. Nice. You know what I think would make a good teen comedy twist on a classic? What? Count of Monte Cristo. 
the kid go, juvie. Kid goes to juvie. <laughs> comes back, finds out his girl's been married to someone else. Can we shadow write that script? Can we just like w- try to reimagine what that's going to happen? We're going to do that. Not right now, Mike. Sorry. I just like what classics. Gosh. Yes. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry. McCullough and Smith decided to adapt William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew with the intention of painting the tale in a more progressive light. McCullough once said, quote, we definitely knew that the title character would not be tamed at the end. Nice. So, so it's sort of like a feminist retelling of mm. Taming of the Shrew, like, mm. you know, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Because like Taming of the Shrew, I don't know a lot about it. I have not read it. I've read plenty of Shakespeare. How- yeah. But I haven't read that. So when I, you know, you know, skimmed the synopsis, I was like, oh, yeah, that's it's real. Ve- it's mm, that's very problematic. It's very, very problematic. I have another adaption on the the shelf that you, we should definitely watch that like. The whole time through, I was like, oh, yeah. And got to the end, I was like, what is this crap? This was written by a man. <laughs> or more than one man. We don't know. Mm-hmm. We never know. <laughs> Probably, though. The screenwriter settled on the title, 10 Things I Hate About You, inspired by an entry in McCullough's high school diary titled, 10 Things I Hate About Anthony, who was her boyfriend at the time. Oh, did they break up after that list? Was I it d- a pro and con list, but it was all cons? I don't know. Oh, but Anthony. Apparent- apparently, they're still friends to this day. Yeah, and uh, she she jokingly like tell like uh, I don't know if Anthony has kids or whatever, but he'll tell his kids, yeah, I'm that movie. It's based on me, and then <laughs> we'll prove it. Okay, well, we call the writer. Hey, is it based on? Yep, that's it. That's it's based on him, and I definitely hated him. I don't know. <laughs> that's why I'm not your real mom. <laughs> so that's fun. McCullough and Smith outlined their plans for the script while sitting on a beach in Mexico, and then wrote the screenplay while living in separate cities by mailing pages of the draft to each other. Cute. Did they kiss? <laughs> no. Hey, I just want you to know you can totally be friends without kissing. I just you got a cute story. <laughs> they're they're platonic soulmates. Yeah, we need more of those in real life. The screenplay was finalized around November 1997 and through producer Andrew Lazar. It was greenlit by Touchstone Pictures as parent company Disney was in the market for teen comedies at the time. Ram Lazar. <laughs> no. Ram Lazar. No, so like legit, Disney saw the money with all the teen comedies going around, Clueless and mm-hmm. all that other junk. Like I'm sure Romeo and Juliet, Romeo plus Juliet, probably said like Disney saw the money there and was like, ah, a teen comedy based on Shakespeare, let's do that. Did Romeo plus Juliet make a lot of money? I think so. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting since it's like highly not thought well of amongst our generation. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I hate it. I hate it. I, I definitely hate it, but like people love it. Yeah. I, I, I hear people fondly look back at that movie. I, I Maybe I should give it a watch. I like think I watched a bit of it. No, I, I'm pretty sure I watched it, but for a class. I watched because, it in an English class. Yeah. yeah but um, again, I have feelings about young Leonardo DiCaprio's acting. And so I was just like, this is bad. It's too it's too obnoxious for me, man. I don't, I don't like it at all. Mm. Isn't um, there a young RuPaul in it? Not RuPaul. The other Paul. The Ant Man Paul. Jake Paul? <laughs> no, the Ant pa- the Ant Paul. Oh, uh, Paul Rudd. Yes, that Paul. Isn't there a young Paul <laughs> I Rudd? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there is a young RuPaul. <laughs> Maybe RuPaul is Juliet. Anyway, we may continue. <laughs> um, and then like, yeah, this I was surprised by this. This is a Disney joint. Yeah. That's why it's on Disney Plus, because Disney made this. You can watch it on Disney Plus, kids. It just continues the trend. We've talked about a Disney movie probably for the last like, or either a Disney movie or a movie that Disney has, you know, since bought. All hail our overlords. Yeah, the mouse. Since, since like 94, 
you know? Yeah. Maybe 91 it, it, or 90. It, it's crazy. Yeah. We've talked Disney way too much. Far. Yeah. Far D- too much. Disney owns our lives. No. And, and our nostalgia. No. Uh, television director Gil Hunger, uh, perhaps best known for directing the most important episode of Ellen, was hired to direct. Do you know what episode I'm talking about? Ellen DeGeneres? Yeah, her, her sitcom. Her sitcom. Oh, yeah. No, I have no idea what that is. It, it, there's an episode where <laughs> the character comes out. Huh. Uh, and it was before the actress came out. Huh. Yeah. So he directed that episode. I didn't even know Ellen had a sitcom. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, Mr. Hunger's theatrical debut. Oh. Yeah. So that's cool. That is pretty okay. <laughs> <laughs> a who's who of Hollywood teens auditioned for the lead roles, including Josh Hartnett, Ashton Kutcher, Eliza Dushku, Katie Holmes, and Kate Hudson. Who's Eliza Dushku? Uh, she's, she's in, she was in a lot of like teen stuff at the time. She's a name. She, you you see her around. Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, it's just like all these like beautiful young people all wanted to be in this movie. Had Ashton Kutcher done anything by this point? Uh, se- that seventy show, show mm-hmm. was last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has the hair. I couldn't see anyone else in this role. Right. None of those people that you said are like suave enough to fit. Like like that charming and like. Uh, yeah. Katie Holmes, I could see playing Bianca. Like the sweet little yeah, Bianca type, but character. not the shrew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those roles eventually. Sorry, wait. Bianca's sweet. Were we watching the same movie? She plays sweet in some scenes. Like, mm, okay, I'll give that to you. <laughs> anyway, uh, the two lead roles eventually went to Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger, and this was Ledger's first American film. Ah, he's that, not American. He's Australian. <laughs> but that's it. That's the making of Ten Things I Hate About You. You know, it's just like oh. a love affair between two screen screenwriters made this, Did and then ho- and then Disney got, Disney got in on that. Yeah, nice. All right, so let's talk about this movie. Okay. Uh, so this movie, because it's based on Shakespeare, there's a lot of uh, twists and turns, circuitous uh, plotting. You know. Yeah, sure. It's 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 just like this, you know, tangled web of relationships, true, and ambitions, and uh, you know, plans. That's true. Do you have a favorite Shakespearean play? Is it Othello? Uh, <laughs> I like The Merchant of Venice, even though it's anti-Semitic. Uh, like, you know, it's like despite it being anti-Semitic, I think it's a cool play. Mm. What's your favorite Shakespeare? Much Ado About Nothing. That was that was adapted into a film at some point, wasn't it? In the 90s? I don't know if it's adapted into a film. I, again, have like an adaption over there that's a BBC short. And I, yeah, so yeah, I've watched those, uh, but I, I honestly don't think I've ever read a Shakespearean play all the way through. I've seen some, like I've seen adaptions of the, the 10th night on the stage, 10th night, 12th, 12th night. night, the 12th night on stage. Um, sorry, 10 things I hate about 12 nights. I love about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've seen Hamlet a number of times. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, obviously, and stuff like that. But I think Much Ado About Nothing is my favorite. Yeah. Um, anyway, so before we talk about like some of the things we want to talk about with the movie, like the various topics, I think we need to introduce everybody to the characters of the film. Who should we uh, talk about first? Maybe we should do it in order in which they're introduced in the movie. So Cameron first. All right. Little Cameron played by... Uh, the name we keep saying wrong. Joseph Gordon Levitt. I can't, like, I want to say Joseph Gordif. 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 Let's talk about young little Gordif. <laughs> so, Cameron, here you go. Nine schools in ten years. My, my. Army brat? Yeah, my, my dad is, uh... That's enough. 
I'm sure you won't find Padua any different than your old schools. Same little ass wipe shit for brains everywhere. <laughs> Excuse me? Did you just say... Am I in the right office? Not anymore, you're not. I've got deviants to see and a novel to finish. Now, Scoot. Yep, so little Cameron is uh, new to the school. He's the new kid? He's the new kid. <laughs> He's Gus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From henceforth, he shall be known as new kid. New kid. kid. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, he's talking to the principal there. She's a... I thought she was the guidance counselor. She's somebody. I don't know. Mm. She's she's interesting. That's for yeah. sure. Uh, she writes erotic fiction in her downtime. And in her uptime. Yeah, when she's at work. <laughs> I, I don't... Yeah, you get, you get a... Canceled for that these days. Yeah, Fired for that. I think you probably shouldn't write erotic fiction while, especially not on the school's computer. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about her. We're talking about Cameron. Why we're can't we talk about her? Because she's <laughs> she's in like three scenes. Describe Cameron. What's he up to? Uh he's tiny and adorable. Um, I know he's a grown man, but he's just a little boy. Well, no, he's wearing a ch- green all he the time. He is so young in this movie. He's such a young. Like boy. I, I haven't, I wasn't watching movies that he was in. For a decade, you know, it wasn't until a decade later that mm. I was watching any movies he starred in. You know, it's like yeah. I, I I remember him. I remember him in like The Dark Knight Rises mm-hmm. and Five Hundred Days of Summer. Yeah, I like my first walking into him was uh, Third Rock from the Sun, and he was child. I mean, I was child too, but he was literally thirteen. So he's like, much he, older now. He definitely plays his age in this movie. Like he's a, yeah. he's a little kid. He's a he's a you know. Teenager. Teenager. <laughs> you know, he's, uh, he, he thinks with his, pa- you know, his panties. <laughs> no, he thinks with his panties. <laughs> you know, he doesn't think with what's between his ears. He thinks with what, what's between his legs, his panties. <laughs> and, um, like he's not, he's, he's meant to be kind of like a dweeb, but he's not like super nerdy. Like he's he, just the new kid. So he's like, he doesn't have a, a place that he is shuffled yeah, into. Nor- he's not, naturally. he's not like nerdy. He's pretty confident, you know? Like, yeah. He, he's a little shy, especially, you know, when he, like, there's a point where he asks a girl out and he's a little shy about it, but at the same time, he just goes for it. Yeah. Like he's, he's just honestly your average random guy. That's just new here. He's just new to town. He's not, I mean, other than that, he's not very interesting. No. Yeah. He, he, he makes the plot go. Yes. And who, who do we meet next there? Uh, we meet his friend who decided that he was his friend. Uh, that is Michael who is, was elected by, uh. I guess the school. This is perky. To be his like, you know, his guide around school. Right. Introduce him to everything, you know. And it's this little. It's he's a uh, an AV club member, you know. And he's he's a dweeb. We like him. We we do like him. He's very he's very charismatic. The actor who plays Michael is very good. Hello, Michael Eckman. I'm supposed to show you around. Oh hi. Thank God. You know, uh, normally they send down one of those audio visual geeks. No, I, I do. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Michael, where should I put the slides? Michael. So, uh, Cameron, here's the breakdown. <clears throat> Over there, we've got your basic beautiful people. Now listen, unless they talk to you first, don't bother. Well, wait, is that your rule or theirs? Watch. Hey there. Eat me. You see that? <laughs> this is like one of those moments that a lot of teen movies took after this, right? Like you see this in Mean Girls, like those are the plastics, those are the the smart Asians, those are the cool Asians. That was a thing. That was a thing. Um and can I just say Cameron's a little bit of a, a chump? 
He is like, oh, they were gonna send me one of those AV nerds. Excuse you. And, and, the, and then You're his friend here. And his friend shows up with a slide projector. Like he is an AV geek. Michael is that. Uh, and Michael is played by David Crumholtz. And uh, doing a great job. Thanks, David. Good job, Mr. Crumholtz. Crumholtz. Crum I also appreciate from that clip you hear the uh, the score. That's just ska punk. Yeah. Because ska punk was big. Yep. We talked about it in our music episodes. Uh, alternative rock was in. And this movie is definitely of a time. <laughs> and I'll t we'll talk a little bit more about it with like soundtrack and style and stuff like mm. that. But man, that ska punk soundtrack lands squarely in the late 90s. <laughs> Very uh, timely. Yeah. Who do we meet next? Uh, next, uh, we catch a whiff of Bianca. Bianca Stratford. Stratford. Now over oh here. Oh my God. A girl, pretty girl walking by. What group is she in? They don't even think about a group. Bianca Stratford, she's a soft. I burn, I pine, I perish. Of course you do. You know, she's beautiful and deep, I'm sure. Yeah, but see, there's a difference between like and love. Because I like my Skechers, but I love my Prada backpack. But I love my Skechers. That's because you don't have a Prada backpack. Oh. Bianca was the girl who loves her Prada backpack. Yep. She's a vapid valley girl type character. She's not vapid. In that one exchange she is. Yes. She's a little she's young. That's I think that's why she's a little naive because she's young, but she's also like let's say privileged. Yes. I think like vapid is like we all have moments where we're like that was a thing. Let's fuck. She's extremely privileged. Toxically maybe. <laughs> she she's like definitely gets what you always get what you want kind of girl. Yeah. Yeah, like she's, you know, prince she's princess. She is. You know, so and every girl every guy on campus like is like, "Oh, we love you, Bianca." <laughs> and uh young Cameron, it's the first thing he's like, "Yep, I love that girl." Which Over there. we'll talk about that more. Uh, how I feel about that. Love at first sight. <laughs> yeah, and uh the next thing we got to talk about, of course, with Bianca is her sister, yes, who is Cat. Cat. Romantic Hemingway? He was an abusive alcoholic misogynist who squandered half his life hanging around Picasso trying to nail his leftovers. As opposed to a bitter, self-righteous hag who has no friends? <laughs> I guess in this society, being male and an asshole makes you worthy of our time. What about Sylvia Plath or Charlotte Bronte or Simone de Beauvoir? Cat, I, I actually like having those two clips right next to each other <laughs> because you see the very, you very much see the difference between Bianca and Cat. Yeah, Cat is uh, opinionated, individual, individualistic. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a feminist. Yes, very vocal feminist. Yes, hey, but I'm down with it. I, I also want to read some, uh, you know, some Charlotte Bronte and <laughs> you know some Sylvia Plath. I'm down with that. She's reading the Bell Jar in one scene. I was like, yeah, <laughs> in the Bell Jar, um, and yeah, I was like. She, Played by Julia Stiles, and she does amazing. Her delivery like, is really good. There's no one else I could see picturing playing this character. It's like, it's Julia yeah. Stiles. She's amazing. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I think this is good to say everyone in this cast is great. Every yeah. single one of them, you know? They 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 pull it off. Yeah. It was like, you just, it's like almost like seamless, you know? It's like, we're just watching these characters on screen. And uh, they're they're very effective at playing these characters. But at the same time, it feels like it's so natural for all of them you're effortless mm -hmm. because it seems like everyone on set was just having a good time yeah you know it's all about you know comedic timing everything's snappy and 
that that's of course the script, but they're just pulling it off so well. Yeah. So the the best part of this movie is the cast. Like I think. Ah, uh, yeah, I agree. The writing is also good. Ladies. Of course, and, but they brought it to life. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I feel like you can have bad actors just let stuff fall flat. I.e., like at our Buffy the movie episode. You you <laughs> heard it in that clip with where they introduced Bianca, but like uh, jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt actually quotes Shakespeare. Mm. You know, with how he responds to seeing Bianca for the first time. And it's like, he plays it off, like, so well. I don't know. It's just, like, something about it, like, it seems it corny. It seem kitschy. Yeah, it's, it's, it should be corny, but it's not. Yeah. You know, and, and then, of course, yeah, it's great. It's great. But a cat is the shrew. She is the shrew. What's the definition of shrew? According to Merriam-Webster, it is an ill-tempered, scolding woman. Yeah. She's unapproachable, uh, you know. Is she ill-tempered? I feel yes. like she only flips her lid when people are being... Well, yeah, that's true. But also, like, she's... I feel like in an environment where women... Like, especially Shakespeare time, right? Mm-hmm. A woman was not expected to be... To speak her mind. Yeah. And be vocal. So any woman who is just a little more opinionated than anyone else... Shrew. She's a shrew. You know, but it's like, she really isn't. But, you know, she's perceived as a shrew. She's so not. in the high school environment, because... I think high school's perfect for Shakespeare because there's this weird social contracts amongst people mm-hmm. in high school like there were in Shakespeare's time, right? So in the same way in sh- the, the, as it was in Shakespeare, here in high school, it's like, you know, you know, these testosterone-filled, hormone-filled, you know, stupid teenage boys. Yeah. Like We run the show. Yeah, it's like uh cat is out here speaking her mind you're like you're a shrew you know yeah. you know can't you just be hot right <laughs> yeah so anyway i think it's a good it's a good character yeah and julia styles does an amazing job yes it's a good uh high school is a good vehicle for this crap she's so angry she's yeah <laughs> she's mad yeah and um you learn early on that the stratford sisters have a bit of a reputation uh everyone knows about it yeah listen Forget her incredibly uptight father, and it's a widely known fact that the Stratford sisters aren't allowed to date. Uh-huh. Yeah. Whatever. So they're not allowed to date. He just, just doesn't hear that. He doesn't care. As if anyone wanted to date Kat. But the idea is everyone wants to date Bianca. Yeah. And uh, neither of them can date. Nope. Until a bit later. You heard, you you heard it, it at the intro. It's like dad comes up with a new rule. Bianca can date when the shrew dates. When when Cat dates, the idea being that Cat doesn't want to date anybody, so Bianca's yeah. you know stuck, uh, out of luck. I think that's really a very interesting uh, way to adapt it because the original right is the youngest, the younger daughter wants to get married to someone, but the she can't until her older sister is married. There's like an eight. It's just you have to. And like, her older sister's like, nope. It's not just that she's nope. It's also nobody will have her. <laughs> mm. Mm. She'll be like, yeah, whatever. But she just doesn't shut her mouth when like she's like, I'm not going to put up with this nonsense. No. <laughs> I was telling you Until when we end. watched it, though, like if I was in high school with Kat Stratford, I would have had the biggest crush on yeah. her. Yeah. <laughs> but like at the same time. But I would never approach her. I was I was way I would have been way too shy <laughs> and like afraid to go and talk to her. Yeah. You know, I would have been like, she's so cool. <laughs> 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 yeah, so cute yeah yeah uh, uh and then of course the last member of the cast the main cast heath ledger playing do you remember his name patrick it's patrick the only reason i remember is because i associated it with uh, perks of being a wallflower it is indeed patrick patrick verona 
I see we're making our visits a weekly ritual. Only so we can have these moments together. Should I, uh, hit the lights? Oh, very clever, kangaroo boy. It says here you exposed yourself in the cafeteria. I was joking with the lunch lady. It was a bratwurst. Bratwurst? Aren't we the optimist? <laughs> Next time, keep it in your pouch. Okay? Can't, can't say that. <laughs> Not okay. Uh, Definitely can't say that in high school. Anymore, no. Or at any point. Mm-mm. But yeah, uh, Heath Ledger, also excellent in this movie. Yes. He's so charismatic. So he, It's like you, you you could see why this this was a leading man, mm-hmm. why like he was a bright, shining star who could have done anything. Yeah. Know? It's like this guy's so freaking good. He's so good. Uh, yeah. And like uh, he, he, he just talking with his accent because he's a, a, you know, he, he moved from Australia. So he's mm-hmm. just an Australian guy in the movie. And he sounds like a grown man. <laughs> <in a way. laughs> Even though like he's st- he's still young. I think he's still you know, like he he reasonably plays a good teenager, yeah. Voice, but he's still like he is a he's a man's voice. <laughs> okay, but like some of the teens we know, true. Some of them are just oh, like when they hit puberty. When some of the like our friends' kids hit puberty and like they go from going ah, yeah hi how you doing to a like <laughs> overnight. Sometimes I'm like, boy, I'm about to punch you in the face. Don't roll up what? on me like a grown man. Who are you? One of my youngest cousins like just hit that moment. You know, I think he probably just hurt, turned 13 and he went from having like, a, you know, little, you know, <laughs> little high pitched voice. Last time we saw him at Christmas. Yeah, I like Dragon Ball. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> so like you can have a just like a full voice and literally be 14 years old. Be like, no, who's your mama? Let's go talk to her. <laughs> yeah, but th- Those are our players. Ah. You know, in Shakespeare's term. And yes. Yeah. All I can say is I praise the cast. Yeah. They're, they're all so good and, you know, just effortlessly charismatic, you know? So that's, 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 that's what I want to just sit there, you know, put it right there and say <laughs> this, this, this movie's good because of the cast. It is. It is really good because of the cast. Anyway, um, after we meet the characters, we must also talk about uh, the plot, mm. the big plan, because there's yes. a big plan. You know, and it, it it draws from Shakespeare's plan because in the Shakespeare play, you know, some people want to marry the hot young sister, the hot young sister. So and they know that the hot young sister can't get married until the older sister get married. So yeah. they devise this crazy plan. They hire a lunatic. That's the wording. They hire a lunatic to marry Court and marry. The older sister. Yes. I'm pretty sure. I don't know if this is in actual Shakespeare, but it's definitely in my adaption. Uh, he shows up like when she agrees to marry him, she shows up. He shows up to the wedding in full drag, full drag. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I, I read like on, on the Wikipedia article, it said like at the at the wedding, he makes a fool of himself or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, whatever it is. Yeah. Anyway, I haven't read it. That lunatic is Heath Ledger. The youngest sister, of course, is Bianca, and the shrew is Cat, right? And yes. then the, sh- there are two dudes competing for Bianca's affection. One is Robin, and one is Batman. That is the only way I can speak about them for the rest of the show. One is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Cameron. Mm-hmm. You know, who's this little dweeb guy? Yes. And then the other guy is who? I can't remember his name. I called him Batman the whole time. His name is Joey. And he, Joey Batman. And he plays like a jock jerk. Oh yeah, know, he's the worst. The jock tool character, the high school archetype. Looking good, ladies. Oh, she's out of reach, even for you. No one's out of reach for me. You wanna put money on that? Money I've got. This I'm gonna do for fun. 
Who's the bad guy? It's Joey Donner. He's a jerk off. And a model. Well, he's a model? A model. <laughs> Mostly regional stuff. Uh, but he's rumored to have a big tube sock app coming out. Really? <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so he's a model and he's full of himself and, and he's he rich. Gives me a lot of Batman vibes. <laughs> Physically or I don't it just rich, entitled to doing a bunch of stuff. Not for the good. He doesn't fight crime for the good of it. No, no. He's, no. He's, he just gives me... He's a bad person. Yeah, Batman. He just gives me like Flash Thompson vibes. Gives me Batman like, vibes. He just, he's a jerk jock. I say this, like, I like Batman as an, an idea. But, you know, Gotham, Gotham could be fixed, dude. <laughs> anyway, got a lot of money. anyway, his name is Joey. <laughs> and he's all he also wants Bianca just because it's like some kind of adventure for him you know it's you like know, this conquest it, thing i think it's mostly the hair the hair makes me think of uh whoever played batman in the dark knight series he looks like to, honestly to me he looks like somebody from the jersey shore jersey batman <laughs> jersey joey Batman. okay so what's the plan what what how does this go down so the plan is cameron wants to date bianca this girl that he has not spoken a word to and just thinks is real hot um but he can't Oh, he meets up with her. Because he's tutoring her in French. Because French. we've got thoughts about that. We're not going to go into it yet. Um, and she's like, oh, actually, I can date. But my sister has to date. And she's like, he, she tells him that. And so he's like, oh, so I just need to find someone to date your sister. And that basically goes to him ask, talking to Patrick. Patrick drilling him in a non-sexy way. And then them going to Jersey Shore Batman and saying, yo, this is the thing. But if you get this guy, if you pay, if you pay Patrick to date Kat, then Bianca's freed up. And their plan is to swoop in once uh, Bianca is free. Cameron will swoop in and take her on a date and cut Joey out. Yes. So we need to unpack that. That's a lot, a lot going on. So step one, Cameron learns that Bianca can't date until Kat does. Correct. You're asking me out? That's so cute. What's your name again? Cameron. Listen, I know that your dad doesn't let you date, but I thought that if it was for French class that- Oh, wait a minute. Curtis. Cameron. My dad just came up with a new rule. I can date when my sister does. You're kidding. Let me ask you, do you like sailing? Because I read about this place that rents out boats. A Boku problemo, Calvin, in case you haven't heard. My sister's a particularly hideous breed of loser. You should just ditch her now, Cameron. She doesn't even remember your name. Yeah. Like three times she got it wrong. Mm-mm. Anyway, yeah, and so he learns that, and he comes up with the step one of the plan that you that you mentioned. Yep. Well, yeah, but I'm sure, you know, that, that there are lots of guys who wouldn't mind going out with a difficult woman. I mean, you know, people uh, jump out of airplanes and ski off cliffs. It'd be like uh, like extreme dating, huh? You think you could find someone that extreme? Yeah, sure. Why not? And you do that for me? Hell yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'd, I I could look into it. The way he said that is so natural. Like I've heard guys get that excited about something, and their voice cracks just like that. Hell yes. <laughs> so good. I feel like that was just, that was like real. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so yep, Cameron is going to go and find uh, someone to date Cat. And mm -hmm. the lunatic he finds, the extreme man he finds is Patrick. Patrick is scary though. So they realize that in order to make that happen, they have to get a benefactor. Yes. And who is that? And you mentioned it. The benefactor is? Jersey Mike Joey. 
Now, you want Bianca, right? But uh, she can't go out with you because her sister is this insane head case and no one will go out with her, right? Does this conversation have a purpose? What, what I think you need to do is you need to hire a guy who'll go out with her, someone who doesn't scare so easily. That guy? I heard he ate a live duck once. Everything but the beak and feet. Clearly, he's a solid investment. And uh, Joe, uh, Joey's down with the plan, I guess. Yeah. He goes along first. with it. He's, 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 he pays a lot of money to make this happen. Yeah. Like $200. He should be like, oh, I, I guess so Michael is the one making that deal. Yeah, Michael And, and Joey's like, what is in it for you? Why are you doing this? All I want is for me, when I'm walking down the hall and I say, hey, you say hey back. Yeah, cool by association. I want to not be asked to bite me. <laughs> Mike, Michael wants the rub. Yes. <laughs> in wrestling parlance. That's not in a sexy way. No. Uh, so yeah, Joey pays Patrick to date Kat. Yes. That's Kat Stratford. I want you to go out with her. <sighs> yeah, sure, Sparky. <laughs> Look, I can't take out her sister until Kat starts dating. You see, their dad's whacked out. He's got this this rule where the girls are... That's a touching story. It really is. Not my problem. Would you be willing to make it your problem if I provide generous compensation? <laughs> You're going to pay me to take out some chick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the facade came off there a little bit. <laughs> um, so that's that's it. That's the setup. Okay. Yes, I feel like we had to we had to set all that stuff up so that you understand where we go in our you know conversation moving forward. Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta you gotta set the foundation a little bit. Yes. Uh, so there are a few topics we want to cover, you know, in this discussion. Uh, and I think before we talk about the character, like you know what they do, their relationships and stuff like that, we need to talk about the tone of the film, the genre, and how it, it's a teen comedy through and through. Mm-hmm. This is a late '90s teen comedy. Yep. And I was telling you, it felt like there was like this golden age of teen comedies in the late 90s, mm. late 90s, early 2000s. Right. It was like American Pie um, comedy, like Clueless. We've talked about mm-hmm. uh, what's the movie where it's just a party. Can't hardly wait. Can't hardly wait. There you go. I was like, there were just so many. And like you watch these old movies like. I remember like existing in this ecosystem. I wasn't in high school in 1999, obviously, mm-hmm. but I was watching movies like this. I watched I watched American Pie around this way time. too early. I, way too early, I did. But like, there's something about like the tone. We talked about the ska punk score, mm-hmm. the soundtracks for sure. Yeah, you know the fashion. Like, it, I don't know, man. I watch these movies and it gets me real nostalgic. You know. Um, I, I have music that I listen to that I, I refer to as only American Pie music. You know, it's like the music you would hear in an American Pie soundtrack, right? Yeah. Like, and this movie has some of those too. Yeah. First song you hear in the movie is One Week by Mar- Bare Naked Ladies. Bare Naked Ladies. One Week. Since you look to me, like, I feel like that's a, that's a song you hear that you hear the opening line of that song. You're transported back to 1999. That's very true. Um, so th- this this movie fits in perfectly. It, mm. It's it's like one of those high points, you know? Yeah. I feel like. I do not disagree. It's definitely higher than uh, some of those other movies <laughs> on that list. But yeah, like it, it feels teen appropriate. And I think 
like the teen, the art of the teen comedy was lost for a few years after this, right? Mm. It's like teen comedies go through waves, right? There's yeah. like, you know, there's like the big John Hughes boom in the 80s. Yeah. And then they sunk back down and, you know, there were really good teen comedies again. You know, and then and then here in the late 90s, you get that other, you get this silver age, golden age, whatever. And then they sink back down again. They get lame. And then mm-hmm. in the mid 2000s, we start getting like your Judd Apatow teen stuff or... I don't know, like I'm, I'm What's like Judd Apatow team stuff. I'm thinking like uh, Super Bad. Oh, like they were they were trying to veer more towards raunchy, but yeah. then again, like American Pie was also really raunchy. Yeah. So it was like almost like there was like they were trying to bring back the raunchy teen comedy mm. in the late 2000s. You know? I've never seen Super Bad. It was Easy A raunchy. Easy A was Easy like a big w- hit. That was a big hit. Yeah, though. I enjoy Easy A. Easy A was funny and sad. <laughs> Have there been like good teen comedies lately? Easy A is a good teen. No, comedy. no, but like lately, the past ten years. I don't even know when Easy A came out. Like, <laughs> yeah, Easy A was like late two thousand. What are even? T- I'm I like mean, the twenty tens. Like, even. um, are the Spider Man movies teen movies? I guess so. <laughs> uh, it's not a rom com though. So, I mean, I think the rom com, the teen rom coms, are more like streaming now. They don't necessarily. That's hit. true. We don't. But wa- when they are, they are like one of them is dying from cancer. <laughs> <laughs> We're not watching all those like. Uh, Netflix straight to Netflix teen movies anymore, yeah. like the Kissing Booth or oh yeah, uh, the Wattpad movie. Oh Sorry. no, the, those are Wattpad um, stories turned into movies. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? No, Ooh, it's a world. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So th- I was like, of all the movies that released in this era, like this, this seems like a good one to go back to. Yeah, you know? it's like it's not embarrassing. Yeah, uh, but. There is a bit of baggage. You know, I feel like... Can't be perfect. Yeah, it was like American Pie, ultra problematic. I, ultra. I went back, I watched it like within the last year or so and I watched it, I was like, ooh, man, I don't... This movie makes me cringe now because it's so... Bad. Real bad. You know, the yeah. characters act badly yeah. to the point where you're like, what you're doing is criminal. Yeah. And like, I don't like it and I'm not rooting for you. Mm-hmm. At least this movie doesn't go that far, but there does have a bit of that like late 90s baggage mm-hmm. along with it. You yeah, know, and I know you wanted to talk a bit about that because yeah. it is like this time capsule into that. I think that like we were trying to figure out like what the call and I think I I like coined it close enough in my head what I think it is and it's like quote unquote romantic and high school tropes. Yeah. Um and like romance tropes for the 90s problematic. <laughs> um and like I speak to that being like, "Oh man, did I think this was like the the kitten's knees is that a say bee's knees the bee's knees the kitten I, caboodle <laughs> i definitely like thought this was romantic and oh swoon worthy as like a child growing up during this time but looking back as a grown woman uh i'm like no like i have a lot of problems with cameron i like even just now like when we heard um him finding out about like the new rule in the stratford house uh, before that, he's like, "Oh, I heard you couldn't date, but I thought, you know, since your dad, like, if we're, if it's about French cuts, like, he's finding a loophole to go around boundaries that are set by, like, and I get it, right, kids? Teens are going to push the boundaries that that uh, parents set for them regardless, but... He's ruled is, by those hormones. This is the first conversation he's had with her. It's true. This is literally the first conversation he's had with her other than staring at her like a creeper from across the quad and is like, hey, I know your dad says you can't date and I know that we've just met today and um, I orchestrated this meeting by 
pretending that I know French enough to help you with your failing grade. So I'm endangering your grade to ask you on a date, to ask you to sneak around and have a date with me. Like, mm, not romantic. It is a it is a true thing. I was like, I could see that happening, but I like that's not actually that's not actually cool. And then, you know, like he does a lot of stuff that I'm like, it's very much like he's got but I'm a nice guy energy. Yeah. But like before, but like you had me capture this clip beforehand when he first sees her and he, when he, yeah. when he quotes Shakespeare, he's like, I'm burning for passion for her or whatever. Yeah. And like, uh, Michael's trying to talk him out of it. But yeah. He, his defense is like, no, look at her. She's so pure. Man, look at her. Is she always so vapid? How can you say that? She's totally, Conceded. what are you talking about? There's more to her than you think. I mean, look, look at the way she, she smiles and, 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 and look at her eyes man she's she's totally pure you're missing what's what's there Cameron no Michael has known her far longer than you he hadn't had, even met her yet you hadn't met her you have laid eyes upon her you don't even know her Michael bro you new to this school he knows her far better than you do shut up like and it's like and I said this when we were watching the movie I was like oh man for a while I think he was cast in this like nice guy frame where like he pushes his expectations and ideas onto the woman that is playing his like he, he does play a very similar character in 500 days of summer i haven't seen just, it but i've aged, heard so just aged up yeah yeah where it's just kind of like i'm putting my expectations on you and you need to meet that it's like i'm a whole person you don't get to just assign me personality traits because you think i'm pretty like i will say no. i will argue in not 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 like argue against you in this case because like, I agree with you. Cameron's, you know, this is a character flaw for him. Mm -hmm. uh, and for anyone who thinks that way, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but I have, I, I can relate to that because I was in similar situations. Mm -hmm. Like I was horrible. Like I just think I had no romantic relationships ever middle school, high school yeah. like, until the end. You know, it's like, I didn't know how to talk to girls. I didn't know how to interact with girls. I was, you talked to your teacher just like <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> That was, <laughs> but there's one. So yeah, I, I had similar shortcomings that Cameron did. Mm -hmm. There was one instance in middle school. Uh, I remember a new girl like joined like my history class or something. Right. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's a pretty girl. Right. Um, I never talked to this person. I never spoke to her. I just thought she was pretty. Mm -hmm. And I talked to my friend who also thought she was pretty. It was like, oh, we think she's pretty. Yeah. I remember having like my mom. Like I was at home one day and my mom was like trying to strike a conversation. Oh, do you have any crushes on any girls or something like that? Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, maybe somebody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, so she's, and she's like, oh, well, what do you like about her? Right. And I didn't have an answer to the question because yeah. the only thing I liked about her was I thought she was pretty. Yeah. And it was like, I knew nothing about her. I never spoken to her. Mm -hmm. I knew I had no idea what kind of person she was. Yeah. And I, that was kind of like an eye opening experience for me because you in order to like a person, you have to know who they are. Like yeah. you have to know about them and get yeah. to know them, you know? So I was like, Cameron, I relate to it. Yeah. I don't There's think, a real person in there. Yeah. I think that it's realistic. I think that it's definitely realistic, right? Like I just don't like it. <laughs> you I, know, yeah, I, I get think it. that it's just kind of like, uh, and, and like it's framed as like, look at all the stuff that he's doing for her, but he's like manipulating so many situations. Like the thing is, right? Like I want to date you date. I want to date you. So I'm going to, 
orchestrate something to gaslight your sister, to yeah. manipulate yeah. your sister into and like nobody's thinking of of Kat as a person, just as a a thing to get out of the way so that I can get what I want, right? Kind of thing. And yeah. it's just like mm, I get it. Like that's the story, right? Like that's the story. Uh that's the story that it's based off of. There's only so much you can do when you're adapting something. But it's like one of those things where it's where it's framed as a like, oh wow, he really loves her. He really is like mm, it's kind of a dick like that's not okay and his friends just like helping and then like going around like like it's it's so much right it's just like look at all he's doing he's getting someone else to think that he's gonna be dating this girl and using his money to pay someone it's like messy in the grossest way it's manipulative man yeah i was like i i wouldn't Mm, don't date that guy and, and don't date either of the guys that are chasing you bianca and you mentioned he's got that good guy syndrome or whatever Ugh. where it's like i'm i've been a good guy i deserve this yeah I, i've earned you right yeah, yeah and they have a whole conversation in a car about that which both are in the wrong but cameron i will smack you you know just because you're beautiful that doesn't mean that you can treat people like they don't matter i mean i really liked you okay i i, I defended you when people called you conceited i helped you when you asked me to I, I learned French for you, and, and then you just blow me off so that you can... And then she kisses him. Here's the thing. <laughs> he said, you treat people like they don't matter. Who is Cat? <laughs> Who is Cat but a pawn? Who is Joey but a pawn? Joey is a piece of crap. But who like is Patrick but a pawn. Who is who are you don't care about them and their likes or anything, right? Like sometimes you're just kind of like, Patrick, nut up. Do what you need to do you're so that the, I can get mine. You're the heel, Cameron. Right? And then he's like, I helped you when you asked for it. No. <laughs> I was a you good were, You friend. were trying to, to and then he's like, I learned French for you. learned French for you so that you could get to this girl. Like, no, all of it. All of it. And then at, before that, he's even like, you're so, have you always been so selfish? And I was like, one, she is. <laughs> she is. She is. I'm not going to take that away. She needed to hear it, but not from him. Yeah, I was like, excuse me, child, step off. And then that's the thing when he kisses, when she kisses him. I'm like, nope, nobody deserves that. Yeah, None of you. That, that's one of those things that is like the baggage that this movie has from like, you know, bygone era where, yeah. you know, the era of like the good, the good you know, good guy, old boy, the guy who's in the friend zone, right? And he's yeah. just like, he, he earns, he, he just, he put in the work. He deserves her. Right. But it's just like, no, here's why I say 500 days. It's 500 days of summer is probably a great movie to watch after this mm -hmm. because that movie is, it inverts that it subverts that expectation because like 500 days of summer is self-aware enough to be commenting on this trope. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's why they cast Joseph Gordon-Levitt <laughs> to be honest, because in 500 Days of Summer, his character is like, he is the good friend, you know, mm -hmm. the good guy. He was the good boyfriend. He tried to do everything that was right in the social contract mm -hmm. to earn, like, you know, love and marriage, you know, and kisses. You know, <laughs> and <laughs> kisses. And so he, for his, in his mind, he's like, I did everything right. I, I, I checked all the boxes and it didn't work out. Why not? Something wrong with her. You know, and he, he gets very self-destructive and he gets yeah. you know into his own head about it and all that stuff. But... The idea is like, you're not owed anything. No. If you're not compatible, you know, and it has, it's a two way street here. Yeah. It's two people coming together. They both have to be on the same page. Yeah. And they, and if it doesn't work for one person, it's not, a, it can't be a relationship. So it's yeah. like, it's not like you don't get to like claim I put in the work 
I just, you know, I earned this. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. recommend both. That's a great double feature, everybody. <laughs> 10 Things I Hate About You, 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I think that, like, like what you're, you're saying is right. Like, it is a two-way street. And this is the thing that we were saying, right? Like, we haven't talked about. Bianca is just as, like, bad because while Cameron's over here orchestrating this so that he can, like, orchestrating getting Kat a date so that he can date B- Bianca, Bianca is using Cameron to get Kat to date so that she can date Joey. Yes. Right? So it's a whole slip slide spadoodle um, kind of thing. And so, like, they're both slip users. <laughs> they're both, like, users, like, manipulating the situation to get what they want. Yeah. Right? Whatever that means. And it's not great. No. It's not great. But it is framed that, you know, Cameron and Bianca are freshmen in high school. Yeah. Or sophomore. Maybe, maybe. They're sophomore. Yeah. Sophomores sophomore. in high school, whereas Kat and Patrick are seniors. Yeah. You know, so their their relationship is a little more mature. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Still flawed, but mature. And I think it's, there's a lot of other stuff that I can't think of at the moment, like romantic things. High school tropes, freaking high school, this high school, this high school, we get shut down. (laughs) This high school, we get teachers be fired. Like what is happening? But just letting kids cuss at each other in class. I mean, let, right? But like, this is a, if you see this, this is not an intercity school. No. (laughs) At all. In fact, the whole, like a lot of the, including the high school, most of the film was uh, shot in uh, Washington state. Like beautiful, the beautiful Pacific Northwest. (laughs) A lot yeah. of seaside shots. They're 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 paddling, you know. Yeah. They go they go sailboating. Gosh, they're so rich, white. <laughs> so rich and white. <laughs> no wonder Mr. Morgan's upset all the time. Anyway, he might be the only uh, person of color with. No, 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 no. Bianca has Bian- a, Bianca yeah. has a friend that's black. Yes. Wow, that's the wording of it. Gabrielle Union. Um, I don't. I I, I I didn't know who that was. Really? No. Nope. Ooh. Anyway, cut that. No, I'm kidding. Um, I think also some of the things that like the overturns that um, Patrick made, makes towards Kat. One, he takes the job. <laughs> he does. He takes for, the for job like, to for, like woo how, this girl. It's like for 50 bucks or something. Yeah. It's not even that much. It's really not that much that time. I think he maybe says like, well, a date is this much. And yeah, blah, so maybe blah, he gets a hundred bucks out of it. Yeah. Regardless, he like... Ew, <laughs> he does this for money. Like, that's not helpful. Kat is not impressed at all at the beginning. No, but then, I have like, the meet cute if you want to hear it. Go ahead. Hey there, girly. How you doing? Sweating like a pig, actually, in yourself. Now, there's a way to get a guy's attention, huh? My mission in life. But obviously, I struck your fancy, so you see it worked. The world makes sense again. Pick up on Friday, then. Oh, right. Friday, uh-huh. Well, the night I take you places you've never been before. Like where? The 7-Eleven on Broadway? Do you even know my name, Screwboy? No, a lot more than you think. <sighs> doubtful. Very doubtful. Yeah, let's move into talking about just the relationships in general. I'll pepper in these things. One, she said Screwboy. You know what that word is currently in today's lexicon. <laughs> Two, this is a really great meet cute, right? Like, I think especially considering what we saw as the meet cutes of freaking the other couple because he's doing a, a gross dirty deeds done dirt cheap and he's 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 doing all the moves that a stereotypical leading man would do yeah 
walks up, hey, girly, uh, which she, is like whatever. And she, she wants none of it. Just crash down at every point. I'll take you places you've never been. I frowned immediately. I was just like, I hate it. And she's just, the 7-Eleven, I was like, absolutely, cat. She's tearing down that macho, yeah. that macho persona, you know? I think that's that's what, this is This is good. This is yeah. good writing. You this know? is absolutely. She's tearing down those those archetypes, you the know? Ban- the banter between them, the back and forth, the like tension not being like a sexual tension, but just being a like, who are you? You don't even know my name. What are you doing? Step off. Because, like, let me be honest. As a woman, when a strange man comes up to me calling me outside my name and just starts, like, trying to charm me, I am going to be the most off-putting. Like, if you're not asking for directions, (laughs) if you're not, like, needing, like, and you're just always like, no, I don't, mm -mm, no, (laughs) no. And so I felt like that was... You know, especially like the reputation that she has in school. Not that she's like trying to keep up her reputation, but it's just kind of like it's suspicious that you, person I've literally never seen in my life, is now talking to no yeah, or or had like very minor interaction with. Yeah, you know? they they do have English class together. They do. That's true. But yeah, um, I had so you, you do you want to continue talking about their relationship? Yeah, the the romance of the film. You know, because this is a t- this is a rom-com it is and so the movie Which is short a short yeah. portmanteau of romantic comedy just the, in case you didn't know kids the the primary like relationship in the movie is cat and patrick you know Correct. They're, they're, they're they're courting they're they're circling each other right it's a it's a will they won't they situation um but like you mentioned like their their banter back and forth is super engaging it's engaging yeah like i i call it verbal jousting like there's mm. a scene where cat is going into a music shop or something and or record store and Patrick like has been stalking her yeah because he wants to get paid uh and he shows up and is trying to like you know interact with her but she's like she's countering everything none of it yeah so it's more of that like back and forth like battling you know yeah nice ride vintage fenders are you following me I was in the laundromat I saw your car came over to say hi hi not a big talker, huh? Depends on the topic. My fenders don't really whip me into a verbal frenzy. You're not afraid of me, are you? Afraid of you? Why would I be afraid of you? Well, most people are. Well, I'm not. Well, maybe you're not afraid of me, but I'm sure you've thought about me naked, huh? Am I that transparent? I want you. I need you. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. <laughs> and, and Julia Stiles' face, that whole exchange, she <laughs> looks so put upon, and it's just like, I am tolerating you mildly barely but i want you to leave me alone yeah you know and like she she you get every so often like he'll say like a cringy like you know pickup line type mm-hmm. thing like oh, I, thought you, I bet you thought, thought of me naked. naked like i think she's amused by how like on the nose he's being yeah you know she, she's like oh god this you know <laughs> like a roll your eyes but like in a i'm a i'm kind of amused on how corny that was mm. yeah maybe and this is also one of the things where I'm like, she's not ill-tempered. Like, she's not swinging at him. She does. Uh, she does. She does. She. You. You hear it in a backstory. She has kicked uh, Joey in the groin and caused some kind of testicular uh, torsion or something. Yeah. No, it wasn't Joey. It was someone else. But yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because she's just like, I was like, yeah, he probably did. Oh yeah. And in that, we we were like, she had to have done that for a reason. She's not. And he groped her in a lunch line. Yeah. 
Assault for assault. Okay, kids. Hi. Don't don't use that in a court of law. Don't yeah, say that I told you to it, do that. It won't uh it won't help you in school. You'll both get in trouble. Yep. I don't think he got in trouble though. I no, think he no. just went to the hospital. Like nobody <laughs> anyway, we're not gonna that's talk the, about the school. That's, the that's school's the, the problem. That's the kind of person that Kat is, you know. She's yeah. not she's not gonna put up a lip. Or or, you know, assault. Yeah. Like I'm sure if he like uh if Patrick put any hands on her. It would she, it'd be, be over, yeah, right? Like she's just like, I will verbally assault you while you are verbally with me. But if you touch me, you know, and so like, yeah, you do hear a bit in that last exchange, though, like Patrick in my head kind of gets a little vulnerable where it's like, why would I be afraid of you? Well, most people are, you know, mm. like I think he soberly admits that a lot of people are scared of him. Because yeah, there's a lot of rumors around the school. So about many, him. you know, like you heard a few in some of those past clips. So was like, I heard he ate a whole duck. <laughs> you know, or I heard he just got out of prison mm -hmm. or I heard he, you know, all kinds of weird yeah. stuff. And uh, so I think he recognizes that he's got a reputation, you know, and, you know, people, he's standoffish. People avoid him because he's a scary, tall man. Yeah. And he's he's exotic and, and mysterious. Yeah. And he smokes. Why? At just was, just in front of people. He was smoking at the school several times, like yep. on, on the on in campus. shop. Yep. On on the the field, whatever, <laughs> rich people school, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so like their their relationship, I feel like is obviously much better built. Yeah, um, they take their time. Yeah, it's still problematic in a lot of things, but it it is like because right, like the next time they show up, the next time he like shows up in front of her is after getting some scoop from. Cameron, who has room raided her. Yes, this is before help, MTV's room raider. Yes, with the help of his sister. Again, so many problems. Just so, even that whole scene, I was like, why are you alone in this house with this boy you don't know, but you know is trying to, this is a bad idea. Yes. Because I don't trust Cameron. <laughs> I don't trust this nice guy. I deserve it. No. Anyway. <laughs> um, And he then like shapes himself into like a guy that they find like he's he's like okay we'll have to stop smoking i've got a blah 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 like uh, again stuff that's like artifact artif pa like patrick is trying to pretend that he likes the things that cat likes in order to get her to like him so that he can get his money and that just feels gross and nasty because it is it's it's um, it, it's it's relationship built on a lie yeah, you know, we've seen we've seen that fail tons of times in in, in these movies. We've yeah. watched tons of times, tons of times. Yeah. Never once has it worked. Yeah, and it, we, you want me to play the scene because he goes to a concert. Yes, that Cat uh, is attending for her favorite band. Yes, like she likes in an underage bar. Yeah, club it, underage club. Cat likes her uh, girl rock, angry girl rock, riot girl oh, music. Yeah. You know, so she they they name they name drop freaking Bikini Kill and <laughs> other riot girl bands. Uh, so. Patrick shows up at the the bar where Kat's favorite band is playing in order to basically find common interest with her. You know? Yeah. And of course, he's lying. He's mm -hmm. being deceptive, but... It's like, I can't be seen dead there. But you, I think like the, the it's done slowly enough where I think you start to see like the cracks in Patrick's like, you know, facade. Yeah. You know, and like he starts to like at least become interested in Kat. Like, yeah. More than just like... A means to an end. Like, yeah. I want some money. I, I want think, some cash. Yeah, I think by this point, it's, like, not like, oh, I'm interested in you in a person. But it, it is more along the lines, like, after they have that, like, why would I be scared of you? It's like, oh, 
you're different. Yeah, you're different. Like you're int- you are interested as a person. You're not in not not necessarily thinking as like a romantic interest. Just like, oh, okay. Yeah, it was like, oh wow, you're you're. I've never met a girl like you before. Yeah. And uh, it's similar at this this concert. I know, I quit. Apparently they're bad for you. You think? You know, these guys are no bikini kill or the raincoats. They're not bad. You know who the raincoats are. Why, don't you? I was watching you out there before. I've never seen you look so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> It's happened to everyone, hasn't it? No. <laughs> you you shout something when you think it's going to be loud and the, the room quiet down. I've right never shouted, you look sexy, and all the music drop. <laughs> not, not exactly that, but <laughs> I can relate to similar situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, Patrick. Patrick is at this concert watching Cat, you know, and it's just like, you can see, like, the gears turning. It's like, oh, wow, you know, she's different. You yeah. Know? And I, I'm, I'm sort of maybe interested. Yeah, I think this was a, a good turning point just because, like, she's actually laughing and like carefree and she doesn't like have just the twisted scowl on her face. Like she does all the time at any other point. She's just like, I love this music. I'm enjoying my time with my girls. Da 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 da. Like it, it she's definitely a different vibe. She's yeah. dressed a little bit more freely, <laughs> I guess. And he is lying to her face. So yeah. yeah, he's not, he's not fully there yet, but yeah, you, you, this this relationship is good because it's one of those things where it's like the point of a rom-com, especially where it's like two different people, you want to see them to get together. It's mm-hmm. like by this point in the movie, I was down with it. It's like, yeah, I want Patrick to change and I want him to date Kat. I want them to get together. Yeah. Kat deserves something better than what she has. Uh, Yep. And then uh, the next thing they do is they go to a party. Yeah. Because Patrick is like pestering her and he's like, come to this party with me. And she's like, maybe, maybe I will. <laughs> okay, I will. Right. Like he finally yeah. like you know, works on her enough that she, she's like, fine, sort of. She kind of forgets that she agreed to go with him and he just shows up while, when she agrees to. Yeah, I guess she never made a promise. She didn't. She kind of gave him the. The scene literally goes, we go to the party with me? No. Or or, or she walks away and he goes, is that a, is that a yes? No. Is that a no? No. Yeah, so he's wearing her down. She's getting there, but they do both go to this party together and. uh, It's a riot. Every, every teen movie at this time had to have a drunk, drunken party. Mm-hmm. They all did. You know? And must end at prom. <laughs> yeah, it seems like, yeah, American Pie is the same way. No, literally all of them have to have a dance. Yeah. Part, a drunken party with a kegger mm-hmm. and uh, in, a, in a prom. Yes. But yeah, so they go to this party. Cat gets drunk. She dances yeah. on a table to Biggie Smalls. Yep. And uh, Patrick goes, you, you said he goes into like full dad mode or yeah. big brother mode. Uh, I called it designated driver mode. <laughs> Uh, which is, yeah, what he does, right? Like, because they walk in, he's, like, ready to have a, a good time with the sexy girl he saw dancing on the car. Like, maybe make fun of people and, like, blah, blah, blah. But she is triggered by something, starts throwing back shots, then throws it back on a table. And <laughs> then knocks herself out on the chandelier like she's freaking Sia. And he, like, grabs her. Takes her and he's just like monitoring her, but also having to deal with Cameron having his <laughs> year two meltdown and um, just like 
also helping another guy get a girl. <laughs> he's really doing a lot of work. Yeah, he's like he's like everybody's big brother in this yeah. school, even though like people are scared of him. Like he's like the cool aloof big brother to these What's people. the drinking age in Australia? <laughs> I don't know. But none of these apparently all these kids are in high school and they should not be drinking. Absolutely. But again, it, another problem we have with the school. Like they just throw flyers around the school saying, party this night, free, free beer. Yeah. Just scatter it around the school. Not a one adult picked that up. There's no cops at the... Are you kidding me? We have the address and the time. Anyway. <laughs> and um, so Kat is like being self-destructive and drunk and she's going to get herself hurt or, or or who knows what happens. So Patrick basically pulls her away and like has her sit down outside on like a swing set, you know, and they have a moment, you know, and this is... I feel like the, the moment where Kat is finally starting to like fall for him, even though she's drunk. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of haziness there. You know, she's not fully herself. But she's starting to like, okay, I'm I'm into this guy. Yeah, it's lowered her ambitions to like be able to see past her like I'm angry about everything. Yeah. So they're both they're both starting to fall for each other just a little bit. I don't think it's fully there yet. Yeah. Why are you doing this? I told you you may have a concussion. You don't care if I never wake up. Sure I do. Why? Well then because then I'd have to start taking out girls who actually like me. Like you could find one. Oh, see that there. Who needs affection when I have blind hatred? I just uh, let me sit down for a while. Uh, yeah. And uh, they they have like a moment where she uh, she like looks up at him. You have green flecks in your eyes. That's not the exact line. Yeah, she like you know is admiring his eyes and like they're almost like a. I don't think they go for a kiss. No, or something, no, they but just have a, a a connection, and then she barfs all over his shoes. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you know, it's one of those. I think, and he doesn't hold her hair back. Kids, I don't care. If they're friends or if they're, I don't care, the gender, I don't care. If someone has long hair and they are throwing up, hold their hair back. Friendship is important. Yes. But he just like pats her on the head, you know, like he doesn't, he's not like disgusted. He's just like, they're there. <laughs> they're there, buddy. I'll take care of you. Ugh. And they drive home together. And I feel like this is the scene where we both decided it's like, they are both interested in each other independently of everything else. Like, yeah. Patrick does like Kat. Yeah. Not because of the money, not because, you know, he's promised anything. It's like, no, no, I am interested in you right now. Yeah. I enjoy your company. I enjoy our banter. I enjoy you. Yeah. And Kat also gets vulnerable and feels the same way about Patrick. Yeah. And uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's hear that. Uh, so um, what's up with your dad? Is he, is he patting the ass? No, he just wants me to be somebody that I'm not. Who? Bianca. Uh, Bianca. No offense or anything. I mean, I know everyone digs your sister, but um, she's without. Sentimental music. You know, you're not as vile as I thought you were. <laughs> and then she tries to kiss him. And he says, ew, you just threw up. No, I think it's more like, no, I... Yeah, that's the moment I was saying it was like, that's the moment I think he realizes he actually has feelings for her and he cares about her well-being. And, and he that, has and respect that, for her. Yeah, and that being done goes like, I'm not going to kiss you when you're drunk because that may just not be a thing. And two, if you're starting to like me, I've been a douche. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that I would like to do that to you. Yeah. So he, this and is so a, he stops the whole plan and that's then then comes clean with her no, because he no, has he respect for her. Nope. No, nope. mm. <laughs> he doesn't kiss her though, which I think is a, it is a step forward. Yeah. He, 
he realizes, okay, I'm not going to take advantage of you, mm-hmm. you know, in this situation. And it's like, he's, it, this is not a character who's going to be like, I'm going to get my cake and eat it too. Yeah. Right? It's like, I'm going to get that hundred bucks because I'm dating this girl uh, and I'm going to kiss her because she actually likes me. It's like, no, yeah. it's like he, he doesn't, yep. you know, and it pisses her off a little bit. Just a little bit. Because, you know, he, he stood her up on he, their, on their not date. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was snubbed and therefore her pride is hurt. <laughs> but the, like, he. Beyond that, not just for the money, beyond that, he's just like, no, 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 I am interested in that. I'm going to go for this. Mm-hmm. And we get the most iconic scene because he's like, yeah, she's mad at me because I didn't date her. Or she's mad at me because I didn't kiss her, but so, I don't care. So I'm going to do my best to yeah. try and win her back. She feels like I've made a fool of her, so I need to make a fool of myself. And he does by doing what? Singing? He does a song and dance <laughs> on the field. You're just too good to be true. Those are his real vocals. Can't take my eyes off of you. You'd be like heaven to touch. I wanna hold you so much. At long last love has arrived. And I thank God I'm alive. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. I'll play a little bit more in a second, but I actually like the way you put that because it's like he realizes that she had been made a fool of at this party and, you know, in the car by not, you know, him didn't he didn't reciprocate her your kiss or whatever. So he makes a fool of himself in front of everybody. Yeah. Just to, like as a gesture. Yeah. You got to balance out those relationship skills. Because I, I think on the surface level, I was looking at it like, you know, this is just a grand gesture to like. You know, uh, it's sort of like asking someone to marry you at the at the NBA game, you know, <laughs> but it's not like that because I don't think Kat would have gone for that if no. it was just that, you know, it's just like, hey, I'm going to do this big song and dance and everyone's going to see it and you're going to have to agree to go out with me then. No. It's more than that. Yeah, it was like it's a calculated move to like, oh, we got it. We got to Even the scales. We just we just got to got to have that that even playing field. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we get that. Just the iconic scene. It goes on for like five minutes. Yeah, we're not gonna play that whole thing. No, but it's it's good. I I it's like one Heath Ledger, he's very charismatic. So you're just watching him like, yeah, I believe this. He's a whole ham. Yeah, he, <laughs> he is a huge ham. Um, and I don't know, it's very sweet. Yeah, don't ever do it for me. gets the school band to help him out. It's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, what is that song, by the way? That is... That is... Can't Take My Eyes Off of You by Frankie Valli in The Four Seasons. Oh. So apparently in the script, Patrick wooed Cat with the Partridge family's I Think I Love You. How does Dur- that song go? I don't know. <laughs> uh, during production, it was changed to The Divinals I Touch Myself. Ooh. Which, yeah, definitely a... Different vibe. Different vibe. So when Ledger was going to do it, he insisted upon doing Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. <laughs> that was his choice. He, he insisted on it, and that's how I mean, we get this iconic it, scene. Yeah, he gave a great performance. This was this was the one he had in yeah, heart. Like, imagine if it was the Divinals, man. No. Yeah, that song is filthy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> no, this this was a much classier choice. So Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Ledger. Good job, Mr. Ledger. Um, yep. So I feel like we don't want to give away everything yeah. that happens in the movie regarding these two characters because that's the that's the brunt of the film. Yeah. That's the main thing. You want to see how their relationship develops? You watch the movie. Yeah. Um, like something like, you know, kind of peel back the curtain, some inside baseball. Uh, usually with these media made episodes, like I try not to like go too deep into the like climax resolution of the film, like the mm-hmm. last act, because some like that's the thing. We don't want to give it away. For you. Yeah. yeah. It's like we want to, you want you to go form your own opinion, watch the movie. Um, we can't do that with 10 things I hate about yeah. because we have a lot of feelings about the ending. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get, we're, we're going to talk a bit about the ending and how where it goes, but we're not going to give everything away. If you want to watch the movie, there will be stuff for you to find yeah, watching the movie. Absolutely. Uh, but we got to talk about this ending. Yeah, because that was really, I mean, besides the like cringy and like, mm, that's not a relationship parts of the movie. The real downfall is like the last four minutes of this movie. It's like, yeah, like the last 10 minutes. Yeah. So. Patrick and Cat, like his his grand gesture singing in front of everybody, it, it it helps Cat like forgive him. Yeah. And they actually start dating for for real. You yeah. Know? And there's, you know, that has implications on Bianca's dating life. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got Cameron and Joey fighting for her affection. Right. There's prom. Everyone's got to go to prom. <laughs> um. And, and and Patrick and Cat's relationship is still built on a lie. That's yeah. that fact is in the background of everything. Right. Mm-hmm. It hovers over everything. Yeah. Um, so it's a miasma, right? That's got to come to a head at some point, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes to a head at prom. Now, typically, a movie you can think of as three act, right? Most movies have three act structure, right? Right. First act is your introduction. You got your, you know, your rising action in the, in the second act. By the end of the second act, there's generally like a, a low point for all the characters. You mm-hmm. know, someone makes a mistake, they feel real bad, right? They have to like work their way up, and that's. They have to over. They realize they have to overcome whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third act is them working their way up to redemption or whatever. And you get the climax, right? Right. And the climax is like, you know, the most suspenseful part of the movie. Right? Yeah. And that's once the the climax is over, resolution, right? That, that's pretty standard. Yeah. For almost every any story, really. Yeah. Um, prom. It feels to me like prom is taking place at the end of Act Two, where. It's a low point for everybody, right? Mm, yeah. You know, because in a lot of movies, when there's a relationship built on a lie, think Aladdin, for example, mm-hmm. right? Aladdin, uh, his relationship with Princess Jasmine All is lies. built on a lie. And at the end of Act 2, the lie uh, falls apart. Yep. And and Aladdin has to, uh, you know, he, he has to overcome that the fact that he lied about his relationship and then overcome other forces, you know, of evil and other such things, right? Mm-hmm. There's a whole act beyond the, you know, I was caught in my lie. What do I do now? Yeah. That scene happens at prom and there's only 10 minutes of the movie left. Yeah. So this scene in prom happens and we're like, is this the climax of the movie? <laughs> it feels like the end of act two. What's happening? Would you give me a chance? You to- were paid to take me out by the one person I truly hate. I knew this was a setup. Cat, it wasn't like that, okay? Really, what was it like? A down payment now and then a bonus for sleeping with me? No, I didn't care about the money, okay? I cared... I cared about you. You are so not who I thought you were. And she walks away from him. Yep. And you're... 
I'm telling you, like, think of it in Aladdin terms, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of this scene, you think there's probably about 15, 20 minutes of movie left. Yeah. Where Patrick has to, you know, come clean, you know, turn Deal things- with the consequences for at least five minutes in a montage. You know, redeem himself. Yeah. Right? Um, maybe there's going to be a fight scene. You know, so, some forces are going to act against him, you know, in order to, to like, you know, get in the way of that redemption right, right? and he's gonna have to overcome those challenges right, right? we need to have a climax of the movie no <laughs> literally four minutes go by <laughs> before they are resolved and in love again yep four minutes <laughs> four minutes from whatever this scene is is this the climax i don't know i guess it is <laughs> I, I mean mm-hmm. but generally in a climax there's like suspense yeah here it's just like Oh man, that you know, it all fell apart. <laughs> yeah, and, and and Patrick got what was coming to him. Yeah, you know? it's like this is what happens. But like, nothing. How nothing ha- makes sense. How does this happen? How yeah. Do, how do they fix this? They um, it literally is because it's I assume pro- I assume prom is on a Saturday, and then Sunday she's chilling at home, and then it's Monday. Sunday she has like a a heartfelt conversation with her dad. Yeah, that has nothing to do with the plot with Patrick. With anything, yeah. It's only like go to college you know, where you want. It's it's like dad giving Cat her independence. Yeah. Like, hey, I trust you, Cat, to make your own decisions. Yeah. And that's like closure she needed from her dad and her yeah. family, but it has nothing to do with Patrick. Yeah, which is the main part of the movie. Right. So it's like this scene does nothing to work on that main conflict. Yeah. And then she's suddenly in school reading a poem that is very emotional because nostalgia. And then they're kissing. I hate the way you talk to me and the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate you so much it makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate it. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse, when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact that you didn't call. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. And so it's like, yeah, that's emotional. Yeah. What if I told you that was one scene from the end? (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't feel like the end of the movie. No. To me, it feels like there are at least two scenes missing yeah. from the end of this movie that would make like the emotional uh, resolution make sense. Yeah, I think like in the because we saw there was some bloopers at the end, and some of them are I think were like deleted scenes, and yeah. one of them was her confronting her sister for doing this. So, Why was something. that taken out? It's so weird. Um, so yeah, like that is the worst part of this movie is yeah. how quickly the ending is resolved, and it's just like. Yeah, you know, Cat Cat and Patrick had a had a had an had an a argument. small small argument. They had a spat, just a little bump, because uh, you know Patrick did bad, and he needed to redeem himself. All in, and then you know Cat reads a sad poem that's inspired by this fight they had. Yep, and it's emotional. It's cool. Mm-hmm. And then they're kissing, and, the, and he buys her a guitar, and they're kissing. Yep, that's it. Yeah, that's how he fixes the problem by buying her a guitar. Guitars are expensive. And she makes a joke out of it, like, so what? Every time you make, you know, every time you you make me mad, you're gonna have to buy me a. Or what does she say? Yeah, like you you, you can't just buy me a guitar every time you make me mad. Well, yeah, but then there's drums, bass, and then they're kissing again. 
I'm like, no movie. You you had me up until yeah. You had me up until this moment. Even like everything up even to that poem. Like that's yeah. a great scene because yeah. Julia Stiles is giving it her all. Yeah. And I'm like, I feel like the only reason people were okay with this ending was because of the Julia Stiles' performance in that scene. Mm-hmm. Like she makes a really like th- this movie fumbles the ending. Like full on yeah. drops the ball, but. Julia Stiles in her performance in that scene kind of makes it hides that fact. Yeah, you know she doesn't. She, she carried. She carried the end of this movie. So I'm. I'm like movie. Even ten to fifteen minutes more of the movie where Patrick like does something like right. You know another grand act or soul. They does, talk through it. Yeah, or do some soul searching. Yeah, you know, like maybe he talks to somebody who gives him some advice. Like, hey, you got to do this. You know, and then like. I don't know. Joey like is mad at him <laughs> for whatever reason, making a fool out of himself at prom or something like that. And they yeah. have like a, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe cat's going to go off to college. Right. And it's mm-hmm. like, this is Patrick's last chance to go and see her before she leaves for good. You know? Right. And like he, you know, is rushing to meet her off, you know, and he gets caught. Joey gets in his way. He's got to have a fight or something, or he's <laughs> got to run from point A to point B anything mm-hmm. there needs to be some adversity here in this ending yeah because it just it mm, yeah it wasn't wonderful it wasn't wonderful kids it's far from wonderful and you know what who i want to blame for uh the reason disney this, well, yeah well yeah we could definitely blame disney for why this happened but i want to blame a good old guy named william shakespeare <laughs> now i know shakespeare's a dead white guy but he knows his shit so we can overlook that. He is a dead white guy. <laughs> he did not know it. No. Uh, so Shakespeare uh, plays, I, I feel like a lot of plays actually, but Shakespeare has a very particular uh, act structure. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare does. Shakespeare plays, a lot of them do not follow the strict three act structure. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're five. Yeah. A lot of Shakespeare plays are five acts. And the five act structure in Shakespeare generally climaxes with act three. Mm. So a lot of Shakespeare plays, they rise, they have rising actions into act three act three is where the climax hits and there from there it's act four and five are the consequences of what happened in act three mm-hmm. there's a secondary climax in act five but it's generally like an emotional climax yeah you know it's not really like there's no it's not a big action thing mm-hmm. you know it's more like fallout from the big thing that happened in act three right right that's general that's not always the case but that's that's pretty strict right i feel like this movie when they were adapting 10 things that, or when they were adapting taming, taming the of the shrew I don't know. They, because they were adapting a play that was written in that way, Mm -hmm. they didn't do the best job trying to, you know, fit it into the three act structure. Yeah. And I can't even find a one to one relationship between the the events of 10 Things I Hate About You and the events of Taming with the Shrew. Mm -hmm. Right. I think like the the wedding scene in Taming of the Shrew was probably close to the the singing scene or the prom. No, because the wedding scene, yeah, the wedding scene is act three <laughs> in the, in the. Right. So it's almost, it, it's weird. Yeah. It's, it's really weird. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. You know, it's like, is, is it all messy because they were trying to fit the, the, the Shakespeare story too mm-hmm. much or is it just bad writing? Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> or, or was the movie cut up? Yeah. Oh, I mean. It feels like we're missing something. Yeah. We are definitely missing things. We're definitely missing things. So I don't know, man. It's uh, 
sloppy. It's sloppy. And I think that's the fatal flaw of the film. Yeah. I will say, right, like the ending of Taming of the Shrew, uh, the <laughs> is not. I, I wouldn't have wanted that either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At all. <laughs> it was just in case kids, I, I don't feel bad about ruining this. Like the Shrew sees the error of her ways and sees that a good life is in serving and being submissive to your husband. Her, the lunatic that marries the shrew, like breaks ki- basically kidnaps her and breaks her like a horse. Yes, yep. and this is excellent. I think in the uh, and then and then at the end, the three husbands all have bets on who is the most submissive wife, right? Yeah. Yep. I'm glad that her. didn't happen in this movie. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm, me too. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad that didn't happen. But this ending is also not good. Yeah, agreed. But league's better, but still bad. <laughs> agreed. So yeah, we had to we had to rant about the ending of this movie because yeah. it's like the movie's so good up until this point, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's little cringy stuff. We we talked about Cameron being a little creep. Yeah. Uh, there's some off color jokes. Yes. There's some you know ableism and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but the movie had me. It had me right up until the end here, <laughs> and I was just like, "That's it. That's <laughs> this it. We're ending. What is this?" Yeah. So <laughs> is that is that the end of our conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Well, if we ended abruptly, just like the movie. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's ten things I hate about you. Um, How was it received? Just no. straight off, end it. Who would, you, who would you would you recommend it? Uh, absolutely, I would. Uh, I definitely would. You're going to be annoyed by the ending and weird boy Cameron, but it's a it's a good it's a good watch. It's a good watch. I definitely recommend it. And like I said, watch it with 500 Days of Summer. That sounds like a lot of fun. We're not going to do that. But I recommend it. <laughs> But yeah, you you asked the question. How was this movie received? Ten things I hate about you grossed a total of thirty-eight point two million dollars in the United States and Canada, and fifteen point three million in other territories for a fifty-three point five million dollar worldwide gross. It was against a thirteen million dollar budget and thus was considered a success. Yay! Successful. Uh, the film received generally positive reviews from critics who cited the strong performances and smart script. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Those, those, those we are good. agree. We agree. Snappy dialogue, episode. great cast. Yep. Time Out Magazine praised the film's lead, for example, stating Styles grows into her character and Ledger is effortlessly charming. Yeah, it's like, sure. You said it, brother. <laughs> that's ex- that's exactly the words I found. You know, I yeah. don't even, I don't even remember this. <laughs> Parallel thought. And Film Threat said the film was quote pure of heart and perfectly executed, and that quote of all the teen films released this year, this one is by far the best. Mm. I will agree with that. Some criticized the film's plot, however. Roger Ebert, he's not grandpa anymore. Let's see if he, <laughs> let's see if he earns it back, though. Said, "quote I like the movie spirit, the actors, and some of the scenes. The movie almost, but not quite, achieves liftoff against the gravitational pull of the tired story formula. It's a retelling. It has to be. He, I, I think he was specifically drawing as like, why do all these teen movies have to have Proms. a party and a prom?" They always, they always because do Because kids don't do anything else. Yeah, so that's that's how he felt. He was sick of it. Yeah. 10 Things I Hate About You was nominated for seven Teen Choice Awards. What? While Julia Stiles, Larissa Olenek, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt each received a nomination at the Young Star Awards. Huh. Stiles won the Chicago Film Critics Association Award for Most Promising Actress and an MTV Movie Award for Breakthrough Female Performance. Cool. Yeah, I was like, of all the actors and actresses in this movie, Julia Stiles is like the standout. Yeah. And Heath Ledger, too, honestly. Mm-hmm. And casting directors Marcia Ross and Donna Morong 
won Best Casting for a Feature Film Comedy at the Casting Society of America. I think they deserve that award. They, they found all those young people yeah. to do great jobs. So good job. People. <laughs> good job. People. Ladies. And what of the legacy of 10 Things I Hate About You? Entertainment Weekly listed the film at number 49 on its list of best high school movies ever. That's pretty high up. Yeah. I was like. I, I mean, I don't know how long I, the, I list like, is. 50, the list is. The list of 50. Honestly, yeah, it was like 40. I was like, I, I put it up even higher, honestly. Of I all mean, the, of all the high school does. movies I've seen. Yeah. You know, like. I don't know how many. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of high school movies. Like John Hughes movies are up there probably. Like Breakfast Club is like probably number one, right? But like. This one's really good. It is. Back to the Future is really good too. But. Is that a high school movie? Partially. I mean, there's a prom, and, but there's no drinking. <laughs> oh, there's drinking. <laughs> In June 1999, the Scholastic Corporation published a novelization of the story, adapted by David Levithan. Uh, the story is retold with each chapter written from the point of view of different characters. Huh. So that sounds interesting. Let us know if you bought 10 Things I Hate About You, the novel, at uh, the Scholastic Book Fair in 1999. I absolutely did not. <laughs> a television sitcom adaptation of 10 Things I Hate About You ran on ABC Family from 2009 to 2010. I watched that. Was it good? I remember enjoying it. <laughs> Don't. That doesn't mean it was good. <laughs> Gil Hunger, who directed the movie, directed the pilot and served as a series consultant. Richard Gibbs, credited for the original music of the film, composed the theme song for the pilot. And Larry Miller, who played the dad, mm -hmm. played a cat and Bianca's dad, is the only actor from the film to reprise his role in the series. Yeah. A sequel film titled 11 Things I Hate About You had reportedly been at one point discussed by producers, but nothing progressed. Obviously, yeah. we, we don't have that movie. That's a weird. Additionally, a spiritual sequel titled 10 Things I Hate About Life began production in 2012. Huh. With Evan Rachel Wood and Thomas McDonnell set to star, but production petered out in 2013. Mm. So it wasn't even going to be like a sequel to the, this just, movie. Yeah. It would have been like a spiritual sequel. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And what of the writers of 10 Things I Hate About You? Well, Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith went on to write hits like Legally Blonde. Oh, wow. She's the Man. Ah. The House Buddy. Mm. And Ella Enchanted. Uh, <laughs> I saved that one for uh, last. You, I, you know. You tainted your legacy with that one. You tainted it. But also another Shakespearean remake, The Twelfth oh. Night. Didn't know that. She's the man is The Twelfth Night. Oh, didn't know that. Oh. There you go. <laughs> Speaking of Legally Blonde, like that, that's like, I think they- Your dad's favorite movie. Is my, da my dad <laughs> loves that movie. I don't know why. It's like my dad has like five movies that he'll just watch. Like if it's on cable, he'll just watch it. Mm -hmm. Legally Blonde is one of them. <laughs> my my little sister takes pictures of him watching it like to, and sends them to me as a joke. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was like they had these, these two screenwriters. They, they quite to the run. Yeah, they created a strong know, female pantheon. characters, yeah. except for that last one. <laughs> they ruined that book. That was a that was a terrible retelling. That was a terrible adaption. It's a terrible adaption. Anyway. But that is 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, so we're going to close out this segment with uh, the song that ends the movie. It is a cover of Cheap Trick's I Want You to Want Me by the band Letters to Cleo. I want you. I need you. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Now, Letters to Cleo, um, they're at, they appear as the fake band that Cat's into yeah. in that scene at the concert. Mm -hmm. um, and like Letters to Cleo, like a lot of their songs are in the, the soundtrack. For this yeah. Movie. So it's like, we got to end it with letters. to Yeah. Clear. So we're going to close that out with, I want you to want me. And we'll be back after the break with my movie of 1999. Ugh, sorry, kids. <laughs> 
Don't run off. The show will be right back. Daddy, now as you know, it's the prom. The only thing more difficult than taking out Bianca. New rule. Bianca can date when she does. She's a mutant. What if she never dates? And you'll never date. Oh, I like that. He's finding someone with the courage to tame her sister. Hey! Me with my arm around you. You covered in my vomit. On March 31st. I've never seen you look so sexy. <laughs> Ten Things I Hate About You. Stay cool, bro. Rated PG-13. Starts March 31st. That's a hey, we're back. Just as preoccupied. I want to be anywhere but back. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's Duel of the Fates. Uh, perhaps one of the few things good to come out of my film of 1999. Only. And uh, what is that film? Released May 19th, 1999, starring Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, Ian McDermott. Anthony Daniels, Kenny Baker, Pamela August, Frank Oz, and Little Jake Lloyd. Written and directed by George Lucas. That is Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. More like I have a phantom pain in my chest. Star Wars. Can I go? Can I? Can I tap out for this? Why don't we get like like one exchange? Like we should we should implement that. No. Like one episode where we each like, hey, I'm tapping out. Here's here's my doppelganger. Let's go. Nope. Let yeah, me wait. go. You, you you've subject you've subjected me to horrible things. <laughs> you've subjected me to just as horrible things. And here we are again talking about Star Wars. I don't want to be uh, here. The worst Star Wars. Like, well, okay, hold on. If not for a certain film released in 2019, this would be the worst Star Wars film, in my opinion. What came out in 2019? Uh, freaking Boba Fett. No, no. What was that? Uh, Rise of Skywalker. Mm, did I see that? I don't. I don't think it was the last film I saw in a theater before the oh, pandemic. No. We're not talking about the sequels. <laughs> talk about the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, folks. It's time. And Star Wars is huge. We know it's it's one of the largest media franchises in the world. So there's probably a lot of ground to cover here. We uh, will not be doing that. Yeah, I can't. We can't fit it all. It's a work night, and I cannot be this. Yeah, yeah. So it, you know, <laughs> like we're, I'm gonna try, you know, and keep things focused, keep things on point, keep things condensed, because we can't talk about all of Star Wars tonight. So, <laughs> uh, what? Why'd you watch this movie? What? What is your relationship with this quote I am, unquote okay. film? Okay, I actually have a very interesting story with Star Wars because I, I, I want to. Discuss that too. It's like our histories with Star Wars. Would you do you want to go first? Because yours will probably be shorter than mine. It'll be very short. Um, yeah. Well, what, what's your history with Star Wars? Star Wars and the as a franchise. Yeah, yeah. Or as this a franchise, one? and then move specifically into the Phantom Menace. Um, 
My dad really liked Star Wars, the, the original ones. His brothers too. Like your uncle loves Star Wars. Does he love last Star time Wars? We, the last time we saw him, he had a Chewbacca mask on. The last time we saw him was at my aunt's thing. Yeah, he was wearing a Chewbacca mask <laughs> at the Star Trek event. Oh my gosh. So uh, kids, if you don't already know, I uh, come from a Star Trek family because... Do they know that? Have I, I, you have not come out as a Star Trek uh, affiliate. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll save that for the Star Trek ep episode. Tease. Tiny <laughs> tease. So, um, yeah, my, my dad liked them. I know, I know that because I feel like we had a conversation about them when The Phantom Menace came out. That's the name of this one, right? Yeah, yeah. When The Phantom Menace came out because I remember it being all big and him being, oh my gosh, I'm going to go see that in theaters and da 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 da. And me being like, Okay. I don't, how old was I? 10. 10? Yeah. I remember a lot of talk about it. And then he went to see it in the theater with my mom and sent us to watch a different movie, which was much shorter. So we were waiting outside That's weird. for him. Why don't just take the kids to see the star fun sci-fi adventure film? I don't know. I can't, I can't remember why it happened this way. I think I ended up seeing... Maybe no, maybe it was a different movie because I feel like I saw Madagascar with I had to see Madagascar with my sisters instead. Like that was two thousand. I think that was two thousand five. So maybe you were talking about Revenge of the Sith. Maybe maybe it was something like that. Yeah, that's probably what it was because I'm like, I remember having to watch Madagascar, and I think maybe it's just my my parents didn't want my younger sisters to go see, it, and they weren't going to pay for a babysitter. They just paid for movies instead. Um, so that's yep. My dad liked it. And you were never a fan. I'm not really a fan. I think like of the whole Saga. franchise, I liked Rogue 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 One a lot. I liked the reboot of the the, the, the sequel, Force, The Force Awakens. I liked The Force Awakens. I thought that was really well done. And um, the first season of The Mandalorian is not bad. So you're kind of like you you've been kind of brought into the Star Wars family in the like the last. Five years or so, I guess. Yes. The problem is with me that uh, if I'm going to watch a movie, the plot's got to be like solid or the characters have to be really engaging. I am not <laughs> engaged by any fa of the characters. Fail, fail on, on the Phantom Menace's part on both counts. Yes. Um, and fail on uh, most of them. I just They just can't hold my attention. Whereas I thought... Rogue One was incredibly sad and all of the characters were so lovable. I love that movie. Mostly spoilers. That ending is one of a kind <laughs> and I wasn't prepared for it and I loved it. Um, but for the, for the most part, for the rest of them, I'm like, okay, I am your father. <laughs> okay. Oh no, my arm. Happens a lot. Oh, sand. <laughs> well, oh not, no. The, the sand, the sand's a different movie. <laughs> They're all bad. All right. So this is non-alcoholic. All right. So my history with Star Wars. Uh, now, I am a younger millennial. Okay. Yes. Older was, than me. Yeah. I was born in 92. <laughs> uh, so you would think of my first Star Wars film would be this one, The Phantom Menace. That is not the case. My first Star Wars film uh, was the original Star Wars. Oh. A New Hope, as it is called now. Uh <laughs> The original trilogy was re-released as the special editions in theaters in 1997. Huh. That is in prep for this thing that came out? I think so. It was basically a test run for the technology used and the CG used mm. in the prequel. Uh, so my aunt and uncle took me to go see A New Hope 
special editions in the theater in early 1997. It is probably my earliest theater memory. Mm. Uh, and I was blown away. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, and this was actually like a really cool theater experiences. And if anyone else went and saw the special editions when they were young, you know, tell me know. if this is just unique to my theater or this happened elsewhere. But we went there and employees at the theater were dressed like stormtroopers. Oh, and that's Star Wars cool. characters. Yeah. I, I, Immersive. So, yeah. So that theater had opened like with great fanfare the year before 96, apparently mm-hmm. like Hollywood legend uh, Mickey Rooney showed up at our theater and like they put a little like Hollywood star in the cement and he signed his name oh, wow. and it's there to this day. <laughs> you can see Mickey Rooney's signature on the floor of this this theater. And so I don't know if it was like this ultra luxury theater and they were really pushing like events mm-hmm. and stuff. But yeah, Star Wars Special Edition, it was so big. My aunt and uncle took me to go see it. And I remember employees were dressed up. We went and go see the movie. It was really cool. And then I had just seen it. You know, this is the first movie. So the bad guys like Darth Vader, right? Luke Skywalker, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. We walk out. And as we were walking through the lobby to leave, Darth Vader walks down the stairs. Oh, yeah, so it was a very formative experience. It was very memorable. And I loved the original trilogy. That same aunt and uncle bought me the original trilogy on VHS tape for my birthday that year, just a few months later. Uh, so I was watching those VHS tapes over and over and over again. So the the, the original trilogy of Star Wars is my Star Wars, mm-hmm. okay? I may, have, I may have been born in the 90s. These prequel movies are not my Star Wars, oh. okay? Oh, you've never sound more like a hipster millennial. In fact, I didn't even see The Phantom Menace when it released in theaters. I don't even remember it existing oh, wow. at the time. Mm. It would like passed me by. It was like, oh, there's a new one and it's out on like VHS now. That The first time I heard about this movie existing and like seeing a, like a bit of it was at my friend's house. His mm-hmm. dad had rented it and he put it on the TV and was watching it. And I was like, what is this? Oh, it's Star Wars. <laughs> what? Not my Star Wars. So isn't that weird? That is weird. So the question is, why is this my movie from 1999? It's because... You grew up to hate your wife. I No, so as I grew up, like, Attack of the Clones comes out three years after this. Uh, and then, obviously, like, I, 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 I get my own DVD player in my room. I start buying DVDs. And I bought the whole set of Star Wars films. All of them. When did you get a job to buy these things? Okay, my parents bought me a DVD <laughs> player. I don't know. Either way, middle school, high school, I have all of the Star Wars films on DVD, the six films. Mm. And I would just watch them in the background as I did my homework, as mm. I did my chores. And like there, when I was in middle school, because I was on a traditional year round or a traditional school schedule where like we would have school from September to June. Right. And then mm-hmm. I had all of summer off. My little sister was year round still. So there were months where in the summertime where I was home all alone. My parents were off at work. My little sister's at school. And I would just like sit there and I'd put these DVDs on like the audio commentaries and listen to them like a podcast because podcasts didn't exist yet. My gosh. So, yeah, like even as a little kid, I enjoyed listening to people talk about like movies and stuff. So, yeah, I would listen to audio commentaries with like George Lucas <laughs> And like Ben, uh, I think Ben Burt, the the sound guy, mm. and just different people involved in the film, uh, and it was interesting. That's what I did. So 
this Star the Phantom Menace was never my favorite Star Wars. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's been my least favorite since it came out. <laughs> uh, however, because it's part of the set, it was just in the rotation. Yeah, that makes sense. It's what it is, you know. It is and what it is. I remember growing up like once this movie hit VHS, and, and you know uh, the multimedia stuff was starting to penetrate everywhere. You know, my friend Derek. He was big into this Star Wars. Mm -hmm. He had like art books and oh. like, you know, uh, he we we, play, we played like pod racing video games and stuff <laughs> like that. So like he was big into this universe of Star Wars, like right. the prequel with Naboo and all this other stuff. I, I loved old Star Wars. You know, I liked Hoth. How did you maintain this friendship with such a divide? No, it's fine. <laughs> Star Wars was Star Wars at that point. Yeah. But yeah. That's my history with the Phantom Menace. Really, it's it is interesting that like I completely missed like the hype around this movie. Well, I mean, then, the it, but I still love Star Wars. You know, in like 1997 for Halloween, I dressed up as Darth Vader. Oh, so cute! I had like a Darth Vader coin bank in my room. So cute! I loved Star Wars, and I completely missed the hype of the Phantom Menace. Let's name our first dog Star Wars. <laughs> Come here, Star Wars. Come here. <laughs> Star Wars, come here. You want to treat Star Wars? Star Wars, roll over. <laughs> Play dead, Star Wars. Oh, no. Disney. That's what Disney said. <laughs> All right. So we got to break down the history of Star Wars. Uh, I'm not. I, I, we're not going to hit everything. It's going to be very brief. No, uh, let's, surface let's level kids everything. Assessment of Star Wars. Okay. Um, it, there are a thousand YouTube channels and video essays about the history of Star Wars you go listen to. This is just surface level to get us up to speed on <laughs> so the Phantom Menace. We, so we can talk about stuff like we normally do here. 1977. Up-and-coming film director George Lucas wrote and directed a little sci-fi fantasy film that nobody liked named Star Wars. Nobody. Uh, I mean, it seemed like everyone thought it was going to fail. <laughs> and, like, by a miracle, it came together and, you know, like, was a success. Legitimately. No, I know. Along the road, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and no one had faith in this movie but George Lucas. Even himself, you know, he probably didn't have a lot of faith in it going on. Anyway, Star Wars grossed over $550 million during its initial run, surpassing Jaws to become the highest-grossing film at the time. Its success spawned a multimedia empire, including novels, comics, video games, amusement park attractions, and merchandise, including toys, games, and clothing. So yeah, it was everywhere. In the years immediately following Star Wars' release, two direct sequels were produced, 1980's The Empire Strikes Back and 1983's The Return of the Jedi. Both films were successful, thus cementing Star Wars' place as a pop culture monolith. I feel like, you know, anybody who was a kid from the late 70s to the early 80s, uh, like, there's like this, this beloved uh, memory of Star Wars as just a thing. I can't speak for it, but that's what I hear. That's that's the impression given to me. And I want to think yeah. me growing up in the late 90s, having watched the original trilogy in the way I did, you know, finding that first. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was very similar for them back in the actual 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. For the next decade or so, the Star Wars brand largely persisted through expanded universe sources, such as comic books, novels, and video games, as George Lucas was focused on writing and producing new projects instead. Uh, we talked a little bit about this when we talked... Uh, Spaceballs in 1987, Blech. which was your film of that year. Yeah. Maybe I don't like space movies. No, that's incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought about the things that are coming up. Yeah, so like George Lucas is like, no, I, my, my legacy isn't just Star Wars. I want to do other stuff, you know? So he's working on Willow and 
Howard the Duck. Yeah. And like, you know, just producing movies and stuff, making uh, Indiana Jones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Star Wars, like, it was a, it was sort of like, for him, it was just like, yeah, it was a thing I did. And now I'm done with it, you know? And then like, people love Star Wars still, so... It was basically just books and yeah. video games. And, and he wrote games. the books and the video no, games? No, 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 no. Other people just, did. Yeah, Other people okay. took the ball and ran with it, you know? Yes. And so Star Fan Wars, fiction. yeah, it, that's what it was. Yeah. It was expanded universe. And like, there would be like big pushes for like multimedia projects. Um, there was like a, a really popular trilogy of novels, I think. Uh, Timothy Zahn uh, wrote them, I believe. Uh, there was the Shadows of the Empire multimedia project in the early 90s, which involved like comic books and a mm-hmm. video game and, and all, all this other stuff. So like Star Wars was trying, like cons- was popular. The universe, people wanted to continue to explore the universe and the characters of the, the, you know, those movies. Right. But Lucas was just like, you know, I'm done with that. <laughs> you can have it. I don't want it. Now, as early as 1980, Lucas and producer Gary Kurtz were talking about having a nine film Star Wars series, uh, including a prequel trilogy. So they knew like, Lucas said, like, he he had, he envisioned Star Wars as nine films long. Wow. And, like, he he decided to jump, like, you know, in the middle, like, start with episode four. Like, that that's what he says was his original plan all along. Do you believe that? I think, like, to a degree, the idea was there. I don't think he was fleshed out at all. I think yeah. a lot of this, honestly, like, a lot of The Phantom Menace sounds like it was made up on the spot. Yeah, you know, I think that, I think that has to be true, right? I think as a writer, I don't know, well, you, you and I write differently, but I know that when I'm writing a story and I'm like, this is the story I'm writing, I have no choice but to think about things that happened before the book even began to inform what the characters are doing, right? So you just have those ideas in your head, like this is what their family was like. This is why these different, but those don't make it on the page. So I could I could see it yeah, being like, oh yeah, Luke's father is, spoilers, <laughs> Luke's father is Darth Vader. How did he get this way? Oh, it'd be interesting, blah, blah, blah. But like- Yeah, not having not, like the full thing yeah. outlined. You know, yeah. I'm sure there were like bits and pieces that he knew he wanted to do, but yeah, I, I don't think- it was, For a second. <laughs> yeah, like it was a full nine films. Like they were planned out. They were ready to go. That's I do not believe that Mm-mm. at all. I mean, I think that the, the prequels could have been maybe two. I, like one. One could have spanned everything. But maybe two. They didn't need to be three. They were just trying to keep it within the like. It depends. It depends. It's all about execution. And we'll get to it. The way he did it, I think, is wrong. Anyway, uh, due to the. Stress of producing the original trilogy and current limitations in technology, Lucas decided to put off making any more Star Wars movies. Oh, yeah, and he had—I I think he always was frustrated by the limitations of technology. Like he mm. knew he wanted these big, grand, epic images. You know, he wanted starships and Sweeping. aliens, yeah, and all kinds of like planets and stuff like that. But the problem is, he couldn't make it happen mm-hmm. with what was available at the time. Right. However, advancements in computer technology, chiefly the development of CGI effects during the late 80s and early 90s, caused Lucas to reconsider writing and directing for Star Wars once again. Nice, uh, specifically, I guess. Specifically, he saw, I believe, Jurassic Park and was like, I can do it now. <laughs> I can finally make my Star Wars movies. <laughs> and in 1992, he officially announced that he was working on those prequels. Yay. <laughs> Lucas began writing the screenplay of the first sequel, tentatively titled Episode 1, The Beginning, in 1994, which was adapted from a 15-page outline that he had written in 1976. 
So uh, according to him. <laughs> 15 pages. Yeah. Took 15 pages and made a you know two and a half hour film. Uh, felt like it. <laughs> uh, the film eventually received the official title of The Phantom Menace. Lucas's producing partner, Rick McCallum, got to work on talent and location scouting in April 1994. Industrial Light and Magic, or ILM, art director Doug Chung was hired as the film's design director, and art development began in January 1995. So, like, they they were going for it. Getting all the people in place. Where have I heard ILM before? ILM does, like, special effects on everything. It was I, Luke, It's Lucas's effects company that he started in uh, the 70s to make Star Wars. All right, here's something interesting. Directors Ron Howard, Robert Zemeckis, and Steven Spielberg were all approached by Lucas to direct The Phantom Menace. He didn't want to direct it? Correct. I think at, by that time, he was, like, done directing. Mm. Like... I, I want to hope that at this point he knew what his strengths and weaknesses were. I think he was trying to save us all the trouble. <laughs> He's like, I want this to be good and I cannot. Isn't there like some kind of thing where like directors have seven good movies in them and then everything else is just. I don't know. I know that Tarantino always said like, I'm going to quit after 10 because I don't want to become a bad movie director. <laughs> I don't want to jump my own shark. Right. Anyway, all three of those directors told Lucas that he should direct the film himself as they each found the project, quote, too daunting. And I think they all like respected Lucas enough and said, no, Luke, George, this is your movie series. Like Star Wars is your baby. Mm. You need to direct it. Honestly, like a Phantom Menace directed by Steven Spielberg, like picturing it, it probably would have been way better. Yeah. I'm like, in terms of like Spielberg has a heart. And he's able to connect, like, he's able to get actors to connect with the audience. Yeah. In a very special way. Spielberg yeah. has a very special gift. And I feel like this, the main thing lacking here was that hard. After two years of finalizing the film's cast, filming began on June 26, 1997. Three months after the Star Wars special editions hit theaters and filming ended on September 30th. So, For just the first one? How long was that? For, for The Phantom Menace, about three months. That that's, feels. It was like that's that's. That that's, makes sense. That's quick, man. That that makes sense. The, everything. <laughs> no wonder somebody's sitting down for half the movie. <laughs> this is all you get me for. George, George likes to sit in his chair. <laughs> George. Direct, George, I want to sit in my chair while you act against a blue screen. <laughs> <laughs> like in the original film, the Tunisian desert was used for the Tatooine scenes. There's a planet called Tatooine, and uh, they filmed in the, in Tunisia. Uh, on the night following the third day of shooting in Tunisia, an unexpected sandstorm destroyed many of the sets and props. Oh. But the production was quickly rescheduled to allow for repairs and was able to leave Tunisia on the date originally planned. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a story they always show in like documentaries and stuff like a storm rolls through and destroys the set. And like Rob Rick McCallum's like, oh, this is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> like. But but apparently it wasn't that serious. Yeah, it's good, good for drama when showing documentaries and making ups. But apparently yeah. it wasn't that big of a deal. Okay. Pickups were shot between August 1998 and February 99 after Lucas screened a rough cut of the film for friends and colleagues in May 1998. Oh. Uh, this this was filmed and there is footage of it. He's screened for him. It, Steven Spielberg's there. The producers are there, and Lucas in real time. You can watch him realize, oh no, I've gone too far. This might not be very good. <laughs> uh, like they, they're all trying to reconcile the fact that the climax of the film is too busy and jarring to watch. Yeah. And also it didn't have a score yet. <laughs> oh, so it's just, ah, ooh, ah, ah, ooh. yeah. And so, yeah, like 
it seems like people were like starting to question George's judgment mm-hmm. when that screening happened. Like, <laughs> I tried to get one of y'all to do it. As with previous Star Wars films, the Phantom Menace score was composed and conducted by John Williams. Uh, he started composing the score in October 1998 and began recording the music with the London Voices and London Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road Studios on February 10th, 1999. Uh-huh. Uh, John Williams doing overtime for this one. <laughs> He's really... You're carrying it. He has to elevate the film higher than, than <laughs> you know it deserves. Mm. Yeah. His score was doing overtime yeah. in some we of those were, scenes. But we were talking about, we're like, mm, this doesn't fit. Yeah. It's like, he's, John Williams is the one like driving the, the <laughs> action forward. All the characters look like they're falling asleep. <laughs> uh, following years of editing, sound mixing, and effects work, the film was finalized in April 1999. There were fears that the film would not be finished by its May 1999 release date. I don't know why there were fears. They got... It all recorded in three months. They were going to get this done. I mean, it's a, like the effects, I'm sure, took a oh, bunch of time. Oh, that's true. The like, amount of the yeah. rooms upon rooms of computers trying to exactly. process it. Exactly. So Render. They, they made it happen uh, in late 1998. Now, here's where, here's where I'm going to start talking about the hype machine built around this film. Mm-hmm. Again, completely missed me. Sounds like your dad was in on it, but... In late 1998, a teaser trailer was released in select screens accompanying the film Meet Joe Black. So oh. if you went and saw Meet Joe Black in the theater, there was a teaser trailer for The Phantom Menace. That's a weird trailer to have before that movie. Have you ever seen Meet Joe Black? Do nope. you know what Meet Joe Black is about? Nope. That's a weird trailer tweet te- teaser to have before that movie. Media reported that people were paying full admission at theaters to just see the trailer before leaving. Star Wars fans would pay tickets... To go see Meet Joe Black, they would watch the trailer for Star Wars and leave. <laughs> you can't see me, kids, but I'm definitely making a judgy face. Uh, to keep fans from leaving before the movie was over, some theaters played the teaser again after the film was finished. Wow. Well, that's because, you know, movie theaters make their money in concessions. <laughs> a similar situation occurred when the second trailer was released in March 1999 with the film Wing Commander. We've seen that one. We have with Pr- Freddie Prince Jr. That's not a good movie. It's not. That second trailer was also released on the film's official website, and shortly afterwards, the servers became overloaded. Oh, wow. Yeah. There this was is internet like ni- in 1999? Yes. <laughs> this is like, you know, a big internet, uh, like, touchstone here. Oh. You know? Star Wars fans destroyed the internet to watch this trailer. That's fair. That's what ARMY does now. <laughs> The music video for the song Duel of the Fates, which entered this segment, mm-hmm. uh, was released in early May 1999 before the film released. That video remains the only video to debut on MTV's Total Request Live, on which it lasted 11 days on the countdown. Wow. Star Wars fans called, like, would just request MTV show it because they wanted to see more footage of the movie. Wow. And yeah, Duel of the Fates, the music video had extra dialogue and scenes from the movie. So they're like, no, we want to see Star Wars. Why didn't I see this? I want to see it. Let me see. Let me see the Duel of the Fates. The Duel of the Fates music video. We'll, we'll share it on Twitter along with like. I don't have a Twitter. Weird, you know, Star Wars fans getting interviewed by, uh, was it Carson Daly? Is that who that yeah. was? Yeah. The release of The Phantom Menace saw considerable buzz with queue areas forming outside theaters over a month before ticket sales began. I'm sorry, were people staying Camping. for a month? Camping outside the movie theater just to get Star Wars. For a month? Employment consultant firm Challenger, Gray, and Christmas estimated that 2.2 million full-time employees missed work to attend the film, resulting in a $293 million loss of productivity. 
oh, shut up. It's like, man. Let us go see a movie. That's so funny, man. We're gone for two hours, and it's not everyone, and it's staggered. Who side, cares about side our note, productivity? Side note, I, I work in the games industry. I just want to say, this is me personally speaking. I hate hype culture. I think it's lame. So, like, this this degree of hype is what breeds disappointment and, like, you That's know, toxicity within a fan base. So, yeah, you know. That's true. Star, I, Star Wars fans will never be happy because of stuff like this. Yeah. <laughs> They're too excited. It's this like, yeah, The Phantom Menace is a bad movie. We'll talk about why. But, like, I feel like getting this hyped for a film, it, it, it's it's going to breed contempt. Mm-hmm. But that's The Phantom Menace. Aww. So, yeah, it was, it was a lot was riding on this film. Did it live <laughs> up to that hype? Yes. No. <laughs> so just like with 10 Things I Hate About You, we need to introduce the, the plot and the players we don't have Star to. Wars. We do. We, we like before we can to. even get we into. We make the rules here. You're imprisoning us. Before we get into the specifics, we need to introduce the scenario and the people involved. So to read, I'm going to just to dispense the plot a little bit. I'm going to read the opening crawl to Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. You know, because every Star Wars films begin with a crawl, just like the old film serials of the 1940s, to get people up to speed. Okay, so here we go. The Star Wars Holiday Special. No. <laughs> no, not that. All right. Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. Hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the greedy Trade Federation has stopped all shipping to a small planet of Naboo. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates the alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, the Guardians of Peace and Justice, in the galaxy to settle the conflict. Oh, is that it? That's it. Nice. Um, yeah, so that's that's the plot of Star Wars. Um, you take your kids to go see a space adventure film with space wizards mm -hmm. and uh, robots and you know <laughs> silly silly cartoon frogs, frogmen. Okay. Um, the, the last thing you expect to see is a paragraph about trade taxations, uh, debates in the Senate. This is how you make sure your kid can read. Because you can't read it out loud to them in the theater. People tell you to be quiet. You'd so, be like, you got to read that, buddy. This is why I told you you need, to, you need to do better in school. Just to like make all of that a little bit more easy, easy to understand. Basically, the Galactic Republic, which is just very much like our own government. United States government, you know, the Republic, the, the Congress, uh -huh. they taxed the Trade Federation, which I assume is a, a union or like some kind of a group of, I don't know, like merchants, they, they, they control trade in the galaxy. Apparently, mm -hmm. you know, they facilitate trade. I, they're like space UPS, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. That's true. That's it's what I, I can only guess. They, they're like space UPS and the government taxed them and they're mad about it. So to prove a point, they have created a blockade around a planet called Naboo mm -hmm. to basically stop anyone from leaving and anyone from getting in. That, that's happened. That Real blockades have happened in the past. And that's what sets the plot in motion. Did and they? Why did they randomly choose Naboo? I don't know. It, like, it was just like the planet they chose. It wasn't like a reason behind it. It was just the one they chose. I don't know. 
Mm. I really, I have no idea. But and you're all, a Star Wars boy. All, there is, I think there's a grand design by the antagonist of the film. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll introduce him in a second. I think he's behind the plan, right? And we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into this politics stuff a little later, but that's the basic gist. Yeah. So as it said in that crawl, uh, the, the, the Supreme Chancellor of the Republic, mm-hmm. the, pre- the space president, he right. sent two Jedi Knights who were space wizards mm-hmm. or space samurai, if you prefer, uh, to help settle the dispute. So they're going to have a sit down meeting with space UPS to figure all this out. And who are those Jedi? Uh, tall and old and small with braid. <laughs> Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes. I have a bad feeling about this. I don't sense anything. It's not about the mission master. It's something elsewhere. Elusive. Don't center on your anxieties, Obi-Wan. Keep your concentration here and now where it belongs. But Master Yoda said I should be mindful of the future. But not at the expense of the moment. Be mindful of the living force, young Padawan. Yes, Master. So that old voice, that's Liam Neeson playing Qui-Gon Jinn, who is... Quite a lot of Jinn. <laughs> they call him Qui-Gon Jinn because he's always drinking Jinn. <laughs> That's not my joke. Uh, the they're 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 space wizards. Uh, Obi Wan Kenobi is the older one. He's the mentor. He's wiser. Uh, I would call them s- psychic space samurai. They're they're, they're space samurai mm. too. Yeah, they have they have their roots in that for sure. Is it samurai swordplay though, or is it more European? Psychic Lu- space Lucas, Lucas, when he made Star Wars, is very much inspired by Akira Kurosawa films, for, uh. like in his samurai movies. So yeah, for sure. Um, and then Obi-Wan Kenobi is his young Padawan learner, his apprentice, who, uh, I don't know, young, naive, asks a lot of questions. That, that, that's the dynamic, really. Yeah. Uh, and then let's let's introduce to the antagonists of the film. So we got the Trade Federation led by Viceroy Gunray. <laughs> freaking, pew, pew. freaking George Lucas and his names. <laughs> yeah, these names are silly. It's, it's Star Wars. That's what happens, you know. Uh, but yeah, Viceroy Gunray, and he meets, he's being manipulated slash directed by a mysterious evil man in a dark cloak named Darth Sidious. I will say what I said earlier. Never trust the witch on your street. Always trust the witch one street over. This turn of events is unfortunate. We must accelerate our plans. Begin landing our troops. My lord, is that legal? I will make it legal. And the Jedi? The Chancellor should never have brought them into this. Kill them immediately. Yes, yes, my lord. Uh, as you wish. The, the, the scary British voice, that's Darth Sidious. And he's just this dude in a black cloak. He's given the demands. He's given the directives here. Why would you just trust a man in a cloak? Do That's a great question. Do what? they know who he is? Because his voice, he doesn't do very much to change his voice. I can only assume they don't know, but it is silly that they don't. Yeah, Darth Sidious is actually a senator in the Republic. He's Palpatine. His name is Palpatine, and Senator Palpatine is doing all of this, manipulating everybody so that he can become the space president, so that he can take, you know, basically, he wants power. That's it. Right. So this whole plan is for him to get power. And he's he's playing like 40 chess out here because somehow... (laughs) Everything he wants comes and, you know, works, even though his plan makes no sense. And he doesn't explain it to everybody. And it all depends on everyone taking him at his word and not asking any questions. Yeah, like, you got to have some kind of, like, what is the situation where you're just going to call someone master? 
Like, what did he? I, I, I keep. We're gonna. The, the, <laughs> are you broken, sir? This conversation will just happen. We were, are just gonna keep asking questions because the plot is not thought through very well. Right. Um. I do want to say we're going to talk about the politics stuff a little later. Okay. So we'll get back to old. Yeah, we can ask the questions. Will we answer them? We'll do. We'll try to do it later. Let's get through these characters. All right. All right. And the the Trade Federation, as directed by Darth Sidious, uh, they are going to invade Naboo. They're just gonna they're gonna roll in with their their battle droids. They have. How could Aladdin let this happen? <laughs> They have battle robots, and they're going to invade the planet. They're going to occupy the planet. Uh, and who is the leader of Naboo? Queen Asadala. Queen Amidala. Again, you'll come before us, your highness. You'll not be so pleased when you hear what I have to say, Viceroy. Your trade boycott of our planet has ended. I was not aware of such failure. I have word that the Chancellor's ambassadors are with you now, and that you have been commanded to reach a settlement. I know nothing of any ambassadors. You must be mistaken. Beware, Viceroy. The Federation has gone too far this time. We would never do anything without the approval of the Senate. You assume too much. We will see. They were just ordered to murder cop men that came from the... How are you going to cover that up? Oh, they never got here. That's, uh, that's exactly what they do. Yeah, yeah, they did, though. But, like, their ship has tracking on it. It, it, the last place they were saw <laughs> was on your. And they murdered. They murdered the. They murdered the crew of the ship they came in onto. But all that mess is tracked. Yeah. Again. How are you going to just say, "Oh, they were never here. Their ship was on your thing." This is the conversation that better minds than we have uh, have had, right? This this conversation other people have had, but it's like, if Palpatine or Darth Sidious' plan is to create a conflict, a false flag operation, to essentially convince the senate to vote out the current president and elect him what really what he should have done was send the jedi back it, by saying we're going to invade the planet we don't want to negotiate that proves to the senate these guys mean business yeah but no they don't they they just say no we're gonna kill him yeah uh, because that's how the plot happens anyway so the trade federation they invade naboo obi-wan kenobi and qui-gon jinn they stow away on some battle droid ships and they end up on Naboo. They're now stranded on Naboo with, you know, in, in the midst of a giant armed invasion. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to get to the city to basically make contact with the queen and get her out of there. Right. That's kind of the plot of the first act of the film. Mm -hmm. uh, along the way, they run into uh, another member of the main cast. And who is that? Aquatic elf. Jar Jar. Jar Jar Binks, everyone's favorite character. Oh, Mooi, Mooi, I love you. you. Almost got us killed. Are you brainless? I speak. The ability to speak does not make you intelligent. Now get out of here. No, no, Mister Stay. Mister called Jar Jar Binks. Mister, your humble servant. That won't be necessary. Oh, but it is. It is demanded by the gods. It is. He's the Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> that's that's him. <laughs> Like that character, like you, you were like, why, 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 why this character? That's the question every Star Wars fan asked in 1999. Apparently, I didn't people say hate that. people hate Jar Jar Binks, and you think he's going to be a silly character that's just going to be there, you know, for like 10 minutes? No, he's there the whole movie. He's just there, almost every step of the way. I don't hate Jar Jar. 
but mostly just because I think he makes the most sense in the movie. Hold on. We'll talk about that. Save that thought. I'm going to cut No, that. not all that. I just mean like he's senseless and so is the movie. Therefore, he is in the right place. <laughs> okay. That I can get behind. <laughs> all right. Anyway, uh, just to fully get the plot, you know, down here, they make contact with Queen Amidala. They rescue her from her uh, predicament. Mm-hmm. They escape Naboo, mm-hmm. but they run into a problem. Their ship uh, has having issues. Yeah, I think it got shot somewhere. Yeah, like on their on their way through the blockade, the ship gets damaged, and they have to make a crash landing on an unknown planet somewhere. And that planet is Tatooine. The hyperdrive is leaking. We'll have to land somewhere to refuel and repair the ship. Here, Master, Tatooine. It's small, out of the way, poor. The Trade Federation have no presence there. How can you be sure? It's controlled by the Huts. You can't take a Royal Highness there. The Huts are gangsters. If they discovered her... It would be no different than if we landed on a system controlled by the Federation. Except that the Huts aren't looking for her, which gives us the advantage. Yep, so they're going to hide out on a desert planet called Tatooine. Also, we have collected an R2-D2 at this point. Yep, R2-D2. R2, everyone's favorite R2-D2 is there. I don't <laughs> have a clip of that because he's not important. No. He's not important. He's just, also, it's, it's he fan just service. has sounds. Beep, beep, boop. Uh, and last but not least, they reach Tatooine. They're they're gonna head into a, a a large settlement on the planet to basically buy some buy some parts to repair their ship. Right. And here we meet the last two members of our main cast. Uh, the first the first is Padme, played by Natalie Portman. Who's that? The Highness commands you to take her handmaiden with you. No more commands from my Highness today, Captain. Spaceport is not going to be pleasant. The Queen wishes it. She's curious about the planet. This is not a good idea. Stay close to me. Padme is the handmaiden to the Queen. Uh, it's Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, she's going to tag along on this adventure on this dangerous desert planet. Yeah. For no good reason. No. I would like to say she is currently in this film a grown woman. She will never be taller. <laughs> she is now, and they, next to Liam Nilsson. Who is this? Liam Neeson. Liam Nilsson. What? <laughs> Liam Nelson. Neeson. Liam Nielsen. And next to old Jedi, she is tiny, tiny girl. <laughs> she is. And on the planet, they meet the last of the main cast. Who is that? Anakin. Are you an angel? What? An angel. I heard the deep space pilots talk about them. They're the most beautiful creatures in the universe. They live on the moons of Diego, I think. You're a funny little boy. How do you know so much? I listen to all the traitors and star pilots who come through here. I'm a pilot, you know, and someday I'm gonna fly away from this place. You're a pilot? Mm-hmm. All my life. How long have you been here? Since I was very little. Three, I think. My mom and I were sold to Gardula the Hutt, but she lost us betting on the pod races. Your slave? I'm a person, and my name is Anakin. He's a person, and his name is Anakin. But he is also a slave. He is also that. Yep, Anakin Skywalker uh, of the of the family Skywalkers. Oh. Uh, yep. So Anakin uh, is a slave boy that they find at a junk dealer on Tatooine. Yes. And they they become fast friends. Um, I'm, I'm like, okay, so all the clips I just played for the, are from the first half hour of the film. OK, 
Okay. That that all of that is set up oh, to gosh. basically establish the 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 adventure tale that's going to take place from here on out. We're only thirty minutes into this film. They're going to try to get out of their predicament here on Tatooine, get the ship repaired, head back to Galactic Senate, you know, and hopefully deal with all this Space Federation nonsense, you know. Save Naboo. That's the whole plot. And that was it, kids. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. That's the introduction. <laughs> introduction. Okay. So there's really one big topic I wanted to discuss today with you. Okay. With me or with the kids? With all of us. Let's sit down, kids. We have to have a talk. In my opinion, the biggest flaw of The Phantom Menace lies in its characters. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, like, it's hard to care for anyone in this. Like, I think I care most about uh, Amidala, and that's only because I really like Natalie Portman. Yeah, and it's like, a lot of the times, it's you connect with the actors and actresses because you know who they are, right? It's like, I know who Liam Neeson is, and I know who Ewan McGregor are. I know who Jake Lloyd is who plays Anakin, but it's like, I know them because of the actor or actress who plays them, not by the merits of the character in the film. Yeah. And it's also not that they're um It's not that all of them are acting badly or being directed subparly. Well, they are being directed poorly. Yes. I mean, George Lucas is a bad director. He is. Yeah. He, he does. George Lucas is not very good at directing people. Mm -hmm. Like in terms of actors, okay? okay? He's he's bad at directing actors, giving them instruction, giving them, you know, hel helping them deliver their dialogue with conviction. <laughs> and it's like George Lucas's writing style is ridiculous, okay? <laughs> he he's an idea guy. He has a lot of imagination, mm -hmm. and I I commend George Lucas for that. However, his dialogue is corny and dumb, <laughs> and he needs he needs he needs a beta reader. He either needs really good actors or he needs to hand off the script to a better director who, mm -hmm. who can translate this stuff for them. Yeah. I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think that it's... Uh, and th it's this a is, really long movie to not care or connect with anyone. And that's the thing. This is true for any film. If you can't connect with the characters in a movie, you can't care about what's happening. Yeah. Beyond, beyond like a surface like, ooh, ah, mm -hmm. right? Same, this is very similar to professional wrestling, okay? If you watch a, a, res, a wrestling match between two wrestlers, right? You, you, you can watch two guys, like, wrestle. But if you don't know anything about them, it's hard to get invested in their fight. Yeah. You have to, there has to be something fueling yeah. the action in the movie. Agreed. And in, a lot of, in, in every movie, it's those characters. If you connect emotionally with the, thing, with the people involved... You can get behind their struggle. Mm -hmm. Star Wars The Phantom Menace <laughs> has really bad characters. Yeah. And I have difficulty connecting with just about any of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, it is like they don't ho even hold on anything that might be seen as emotional or moving to, to a viewer. And it kind of varies from character to character. So I want to take this one step further. Okay. This is my argument. I would argue that the Phantom Menace does not have a protagonist. You would argue that. <laughs> it does not have a main character. Yeah. It has potentially maybe five main characters, mm -hmm. right? Like like five characters that could fill the role of the protagonist. But I right. would argue that they don't. None of those characters fit the role of a real protagonist. What now, is the definition of a protagonist? I'm glad you asked that because I have a special clip to help explain. <laughs> now, 
a lot of what we're going to talk about today, this is well trodden ground, mm-hmm. right? The, the, these conversations have been had for 20 years. Yeah. Um, one of the leading, most important pieces of criticism about the Phantom Menace oh, no. is a little video review oh, no. by Red Letter Media, and it's called the Mr. Plinkett Review of the Phantom Menace. Star Wars The Phantom Menace was the most disappointing thing since my son. (laughs) So yeah, I highly recommend watching Mr. Plinkett Reviews The Phantom Menace. It's an hour and a half long video review of The Phantom Menace, explaining in minute detail exactly why this movie's bad, what's bad about it. Uh, And it's, it's entertaining and fun. It's also, you know, racy in some places, you know, like... You got to know what you're getting into, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, it's like pretty profane and, you know, some there's a lot of toilet humor and stuff like that. <laughs> Mr. Plinkett, it's done in character of this old creepy man named Mr. Plinkett. He's like a serial killer. He <laughs> kidnaps women and keeps them in their in his basement. Why it, it's is all, this it's, a thing that you've watched it's many just, times? It, it's all for entertainment value. It's to like to keep, it's to balance out the dry film criticism about this, the Phantom Menace. Anyway, mm-hmm. Mr. Plinkett focuses pretty heavily on the characters of the Phantom Menace. I want to go a step beyond and do our own thing, but mm-hmm. here's Mr. Plinkett explaining what a protagonist is. Let's start a movie making 101, shall we? You see, in most movies, the audience needs a character to connect with. Typically, this character is something called a protagonist. When you're in a weird movie with like aliens and monsters and weirdos, the audience really needs someone who's like a normal person like them to guide them through the story. Now this of course doesn't apply to every movie, but it works best in the sci-fi, superhero, action, and fantasy genres. Character that they can connect with, right? Someone right. Someone the audience can see themselves in. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Plinkett goes into pretty you know, a pretty deep detail on all the different characters and explaining why, you know, he he the you know, he had difficulty Connecting with the characters in right. The Phantom Menace. However, I want to do something unique, something different, you okay. know, something between the two of us. Now, while we were watching it this last time, I asked you, you know, just in Kai's conversation, I said, who do you think is a great film protagonist? Mm-hmm. Like someone you, you just connect with, someone that you just like, it's like, yeah, that's a great protagonist. Who did you tell me? Spider-Man's. Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. And, and th- this applies to all of the Spider-Man. Yes. Right? Also, Mom, wow, hold on. Also, Miles Morales. Miles Morales, yes. I, any of those Spider-Men. But specifically, uh, for the sake of this conversation, let's focus on Tom Holland's Spider-Man. From yeah. the recent trilogy of you know Spider-Man, Homecoming, Holmes. the home movies. <laughs> the MC, MCU Spider-Man, basically. I want you to get your pen and paper out. I don't Je- have Jess. that. Uh, get your tablet out. I okay. want you to take some notes. Oh, dear. Very quickly, let's note... Like characteristics that make Peter Parker of MCU Spider-Man a good protagonist. Okay. I think Plinkett nailed the first one. Relatable to the audience. What do you think? What else? What else makes Peter Parker a great protagonist? Um, well, I think like what is relatability, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think relatable is a pretty general term. I think, you know, Anakin could be relatable to people who have been slaves. Uh <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Almadala could be related. Char- to- char- charisma is definitely a, a, an element there. Yeah. It's I like th- people connect with Peter Parker because Tom Holland plays him so charismatically. You know? I think, yeah. Okay. So in line with charisma, 
that's not how you spell that word. Uh, in line with charisma, it is the things that make it. It's the like being smart, but also being dumb. You know, like when you're like, that's you're pretty bright. How come you didn't know to not put dish soap in the dishwasher? <laughs> Those like missing bits of information. Like, I feel like well-defined uh, character traits, right? Yeah. Like flaw, like obvious flaws, like not necessarily like the hugest Achilles heel, but just kind of like, uh, you know, you tend to talk over people so you don't get all the information. And then uh, now you are in a bad place. Flaw, because you flaws didn't. is good. Character yeah. flaws is good because honestly, and that's another thing about protagonists. Have, having your main character have character flaws gives them something to overcome over the course of the movie, right? Yeah. Peter Parker in those movies is forgetful. He's irresponsible, right? And he's trying mm. his best. He's also like, he has like big time imposter syndrome. Yeah. He's constantly trying to measure himself up to Tony Stark, yeah. Iron Man. So that's a character flaw that he needs to overcome. He needs to become his own man, right? Mm. So I think you're right. Character flaws is a good, necessary for a main character. Yeah, and I think something that like, talking about that that had to like really be juggled with the the spider-man as it was rebooted this is because a good protagonist is has to learn about the world and that's what helps us be able to relate to the world that we're dropped into with this new reboot with tom holland spider-man uh he was in civil war was it civil yeah, war yeah and he was just there and then he got his own movie and we didn't have to see him figure out how to how he became a spider person figure out how blah blah, blah. it was i remember watching whatever the first one was is that homecoming. homecoming watching homecoming and thinking this is a weird place to start like there's no uncle ben there's no like not we're at school we've got like mm, Huh. But we still had to like at that point learn about the new suit, learn about like we still had to learn about what the new world looked like for a Spider-Man that is acknowledging that like all of the Avenger stuff has uh, input I, I into think, the world. I think that goes with like introducing the audience to the world of the film, you know? Yeah. And, and Plinkett said it right. It's like, you know, that that's definitely necessary for your sci-fi action superhero movies. Yeah. I would also bounce into an arc they need to learn something and that goes with flaw right yeah but a good protagonist has a good character arc growth development right yeah redemption anything like that they learn something along the way <laughs> um i also think they have friendships like a good protagonist isn't necessarily like alone with like maybe that's the reason like do you know the movie drive with uh ryan gosling yes i hate that movie well, he's a horrible character too. <laughs> I can't even remember. That guy has he speaking of he has no charisma in that movie. <laughs> and he has like He's a very charismatic man, and he that is. just wasn't it. That was like, yeah, that character is just like deadpan the whole time. Like he's he's like very off-putting to me. I totally agree. But yeah. So either like friends or some kind of social uninept not what's the opposite of social inept? Socially inept. Like, you have to have some kind of social. Social literacy or something. Yes, I'm going to put social literacy. I would also say that a good protagonist needs to have agency over the story. Yes. Right? Spider-Man, he reacts to the things that happen to him and his friends. Mm -hmm. uh, he makes decisions that propel the plot forward. Right? Yeah. In that movie, he, he makes the decision to, like, investigate a truck, you know, driving into like upstate New York somewhere or whatever, or DC or something. Right. He makes the decision to like, you know, uh, put off the big, uh, academic 
decathlon or whatever yeah. so that he can go investigate uh, a crime happening, right? Mm-hmm. Spider-Man makes decisions. He has agency over the story, right? He reacts to things that are happening. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's this is in the same line as what you're saying is having a- agency over the story, but I think a good protagonist, and I guess this is also meaning like protagonist and a quote-unquote good guy because there can be protagonists yeah yeah there can be bad protagonists but like like, bad guy protagonists yeah choosing the thing over the want of self right like i even saying that spider-man thing he eventually you know he's like i could date the girl that i really like and i could uh da 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 but no i'm gonna go (laughs) beat up her dad i guess (laughs) or whatever i think a good protagonist like has to be selfless not selfless but put in a position where a choice needs to be made yes. and that choice has to be about the greater good That's like or the lesser good. It doesn't necessarily mean to be it's only good for you, um, but it's like mostly good for you and yours. That's some Campbell like hero with a thousand faces stuff right there. Like George Lucas, when he wrote the original Star Wars, was fascinated by Campbell and he wanted to like talk about the monomyth. Right. And it's mm-hmm. like Luke Skywalker was the archetypal hero mm-hmm. from like fairy tales and, and, you know, every story ever told. Right. Right. And I feel like that's an element of Campbell's like hero archetype. The hero's journey is the choice. Right. right? You know, and not just the choice to leave, you know, childhood behind, but whatever that is. I think Mm -hmm. you're right. That choice needs to be made in order to make a good character. Yeah. Especially in the framework that George Lucas is working in. I totally agree with you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then it doesn't always have to work. Like I think about like Deadpool. I'm sorry. We're doing a lot of I'm saying a lot of of superhero movies but like he's obviously not the good guy but he comes against a choice at the end of each of his movies and he chooses the greater good which is still a lot of murder but you know i agree i think we got a pretty good list of characteristics for a great protagonist right yeah i got eight of them you want to list them off uh relatable to audience charismatic obvious flaws learning the world (laughs) Um, an arc, growth, or development within the story, friends or social literacy, agency over story, and choosing the thing over thyself. Good, good. So we got them all. Now, mm-hmm. here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through a list of five characters <laughs> in The Phantom Menace, so and we're going to assess them based on what we've just listed out as great protagonist characteristics. All right. All right. Now, I've kind of listed these out, in my opinion, from least like a protagonist to most like a protagonist you know they, they, you know we might be able to exchange them back and forth you know it's mm-hmm. it, this is kind of a rough this is just my opinion you okay. know just organizing these but we're gonna start with obi-wan kenobi mm, which one is that that is ewan mcgregor got it. the young oh apprentice wow. there yeah i definitely didn't think yes okay yeah the young jedi apprentice okay All right now ewan mcgregor uh <laughs> he has very little agency over the events of the film. So it's like, you can't check that off. It's like, no way. Like, no, that's a fail. Because what did I joke when we watched it? What does Ewan McGregor do for half of this movie? Sit down in a chair. The hyperdrive generator's gone, Master. We'll need a new one. That'll complicate things. Be wary. I sense a disturbance in the force. I feel it also, Master. Don't let them send any transmissions. So yeah, Qui-Gon Jinn, he, he leaves to go and, you know, to Tatooine to go repair the ship and deal right. with all that stuff. Ewan McGregor stays behind and is basically told by Obi-Wan, yeah, just babysit yeah. everyone here on the ship. Just hang out. And and that that's all he does for the rest of the, like, almost the rest of the movie until, 
like one fu- thing happens at the very end. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's the only thing that Ewan McGregor does in this movie. Obi-Wan yeah. Kenobi sits in a chair and takes phone calls. <laughs> and you're sure there's nothing left on board? A few containers of supplies. The Queen's wardrobe, maybe, but not enough for you to barter with. Not in the amounts you're talking about. All right. I'm sure another solution will present itself. I'll check back later. <laughs> I'll check back later. Keep okay, sitting in that chair. Okay, I'll be here. <laughs> what, other, what other stuff on here uh, does, does Obi-Wan fall short on? <clears throat> I mean, because he doesn't have agency of the plot, he doesn't necessarily choose one good thing. Choose the good thing. He doesn't choose to do anything. Yeah. He's told what to do. Yeah. By, Obi- by uh, Qui-Gon. And um, I will say he has more social literacy than his master, so he gets a pass on that. Yeah, like he he ha- but but he doesn't really have any conversations with anybody other than Qui Gon. Like Qui Gon is like, well, and, and and Jar Jar. He asks Jar Jar some questions, but You're like right. he doesn't have a friendship with Jar Jar. You're right, and the he's only- kind of like rude to Anakin. He is. All right. The boy is dangerous. <laughs> Have you talked to the boy? All right. Okay. He's not socially Yeah, literate. no, not at all. Um, He doesn't have an arc or growth. Nope. I mean, at the end, at he the, takes on Anakin. At the, okay. He, he takes he on does Anakin do as that, a Padawan. He does do that, but it's like, is that an arc? I guess weak, a weak arc where Obi-Wan doesn't feel like Anakin should be trained as a Jedi, mm-hmm. but then- Changes his mind because he was asked to by his master. Give it to him. Okay, that's a that's a very weak arc. It's yeah. like a half point. Okay, um, we don't see him learn. He learns a little bit about Naboo, and we see Naboo through uh, him and Qui. Yeah, mo- mostly just him and Qui Gon together. Yeah, but not him individually. No, no. Okay. What about his characteristics? Uh, naive. Uh, Characteristics? His I don't know. Relatable? His, his charisma or flaws? You meant the flaws. Flaw, flaws or yeah, anything. Yeah. Any character traits at all? Yeah, he. <laughs> no, there's there's no there's no obvious flaws because Other we don't really see him very much. Inexperience? And not even that because like we we can say inexperience, but his master is like, nah, he's ready to test. So he's not really inexperienced, and we did see on a number of occasions of him being like, mm, "I sense a disturbance," and his teacher being like, "Pasha." <laughs> I don't hear. I don't sense anything. It's true. Like, um, he seems pretty competent. He's competent. Yeah, he seems pretty competent. Yeah, so um, he's not relatable to me. Maybe, maybe his obvious flaw is that he is uh, socially illiterate. <laughs> he's not even that. He's just blah. There's nothing to him. Yeah, I don't relate to him. He has no charisma, even yeah, though Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor is a charismatic man. He is a charismatic man. He, it does not come through in this movie. No. Later on, like in the other Star Wars prequel movies, like you see more of Ewan McGregor's charisma come mm-hmm. through in Obi-Wan Kenobi. But in this film, nope. non-existent. <laughs> yeah. And then that's it. And so in, in saying that, he is unrelatable to the audience. He doesn't have a job that anyone could relate to, even a cop. Even a psychic or a samurai nowadays wouldn't be able to. Yeah, um, he sits in a chair. He's 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 like the Ned to Qui Gon's Peter Parker. Excuse me, don't down talk Ned. He's the guy in the chair. <laughs> Ned is much better yeah, as so a guy o- in a chair. Obi Wan, he fails the protagonist test. Big F. <laughs> get a get a sound of a stamping, a stamping F. Now the next one is kind of a twofer. It's Queen Amidala. And Padme, because why? 
I don't know why. Because of the same person. <gasps> we have searched you out because we wish to form an alliance. Your Honor. Usadis. I am Queen Amidala. Huh? This is my decoy, my protection, my loyal bodyguard. I'm sorry for my deception, but it was necessary to protect myself. Why do they talk like that? Why is that the way she's talking? Why? This is my bodyguard, my decoy, my loving lover. That's that's George Lucas's choice, I suppose, his direction. Is this supposed to be an accent of Naboo? I don't know. An accent of royalty? Monotoned. Like, what is this? I hate it. Okay, yeah. So it's like the most interesting thing that Queen Amidala slash Padme does is the fact that Queen Amidala is actually Padme. And the, the handmaid is actually the queen. There's and the a woman, better twist than Dark Vader being a father. And the queen who is in her robes and makeup is actually Kira Knightley. And it's actually a decoy. Yeah. That's the I was like, is that an arc, though? It's a twist. She's a spy. She's been a spy the whole time. Does does Queen Amidala grow in any way? Um, She is royalty, so she has no need for growth. She's an elected official. She is an elected official. <laughs> I, I can't think of a, an arc. Like, there are a few character moments where like she, she she grieves for her people. She wants to save her people. She's frustrated by the lack of movement in the Senate. Right? I think that makes her relatable. I think she passes on that. Like okay. who among us as an adult is not frustrated when like, thinking about our Senate? I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Again, to me, it's a limp, but I will concede. Yeah. I, will I also her. see this might be just because I love Natalie Portman. I do think she gives the most charismatic performance as Padme. As Padme. Um, I think she gives the most charismatic performance in the whole movie. It's not very charismatic, but it is the most because even in that scene that you played of her just being like, you're such a silly boy. Like that was close to like, it's, it's, it's Natalie Portman who we know is like, one of the greatest actresses yeah, of our she's generation. So good. But also there are some line I don't have a, a line, but there's one line where she like said a piece of dialogue and we're like, why did you use that take? <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> and it's like, Natalie Portman, we know you're better than this. You're better than this. And it's this. because George Lucas directed her bad. Yeah. You know? So I'm like, char charisma? I was like half point. I mean, yeah. So I'm gonna give her a full point for relatable, uh half point charismatic oh am i supposed to be numbering that's nah, fine okay we're, we're just discussing yeah because i was like i'm just xing yeah, them yeah. off if no, they totally, don't get totally fine. um learning the world we don't learn the world through her because uh she just kind of like is at the places making like commands like she runs the place yeah she doesn't really have an arc like nope. you said um uh, it, other than yeah, maybe it, like no because she's pushed into that i think that's the a the, twist like, I'm like, a twist is not an arc. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a band-aid for not having an arc. Yeah. I, I think the only thing I was going to say is like, she goes from trusting in the Republic to not <laughs> and to like standing up against that. But I don't necessarily think that's an arc. And I think that's, it's something I, she's that's, manipulated into. That's, a, I will at least say agency. She has yeah. some kind of agency. I would give her that. I mean, she's the ruler of a people. Right, so yeah. she should have some agency. And she's the one pushing everyone to like, hey, we need to get off the planet or we need to go back to Naboo. All that stuff. So, yeah, right. she does have agency over the story. Right. Um, to an extent. To an extent. When, when There are scenes where Qui-Gon takes the lead and Padme is just tagging along. Yeah. So it's like, again, it's another half measure. It's like, 
Sometimes she does. Sometimes she doesn't. I will also say she doesn't have obvious flaws except for being a big fat liar. <laughs> it's like, but the movie doesn't present it as a as a flaw. Yeah, you know? it's just like it's a, a, a need of her station. It, it, like the only flaw she has is you know the flaws inherent in being a fourteen year old little girl. Yeah, in a very dangerous place. Yeah, you know, like a frail fourteen year old <laughs> little girl. Gosh, what what kind of people? How did she get elected as a child? She's an elected official. It wasn't like she was like, my parents are both dead and they were king and queen and now I must rule. Peep, there was there was there was a vote. There was a vote. <laughs> and this this Gretchen Wiener, well, no. Who's who's the woman I want to say? Who's the child who is Greta Thunberg? Yes. This Greta Thunberg <laughs> was they were like, "You, you are going to rule Naboo." We would do much better <laughs> if we would. But it's so also funny. all the other governments would be pushing at her at the same the same way. So that is also very relatable. Anyway, um, she doesn't have friends. <laughs> Not at all. She's other than herself. Socially literate. I mean, she has to be some kind of socially literate because one, she's pulling off being a handmaiden and two, she was elected to this position, so she has to have social literacy, but we don't see we it. We don't see it, so it, do it doesn't exist as far as the movie's concerned. Yeah. It's implied but not presented, which I think is not that, – that, that can't be a point. Yeah. And she doesn't choose the thing over self. She doesn't have the, cho the choice to. Well, well, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I will give her this one because she – they were like, all right, queen – Give it over to us. Like, nope. <laughs> yeah, My she, she makes the choice to vote for no confidence in the yeah. chancellor. So it's like she makes a choice, but she is manipulated into it, like you yeah. said. So it's sort of like, like the movie, again, it's another half point. It's like No, I would give her a full point because in other in other places she will she literally is like, No, I'm not bowing to you trade for the federation. My people will suffer. Fair enough. I'm like, well, we'll kill you. Fine. Okay. Right. Kill me. My P I will like if I have to die, you will not while I am alive do this. Okay. So right. I will give her that. So she's got she has more uh than old boy whoever we just Obi talked Obi about. Obi-Wan. She's relatable cause Senate sucks. Uh we're not giving her charismatic. I gave her a triangle because you're like, no, 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 but I just like her so much. Uh so she's got relatable, uh choosing to sacrifice self. And slight agency. No, we don't want to say agency because she, she has like, a little talked, bit. She was a little manipulated. Bit. So out of eight, she's got two and a half. <laughs> it's about right. It's about right. All right. Next up on our list is actually Qui-Gon Jinn. Which one's that? <laughs> Liam Neeson, the old okay, man. Okay, got it. The old drunk. <laughs> the old drunk. All right. So <laughs> Liam Neeson definitely has agency over the story. He does. Most certainly he does. Mm -hmm. Like he he's calling the shots a lot of the time. Yes. Uh, he's, you know, hey, hey, Obi Wan, we got to go over here. Hey, Obi Wan, we got to do this. Hey, Queen Amidala, we got to do this. You know, mm -hmm. so he, he, that, that's a full check in my opinion. Like, right. the, the guy has agency, for he, sure. He also has obvious flaws. <laughs> what flaws are those? Uh, the one where he cheats everyone and tries to steal stuff by using his Jedi power to just get free crap. Being luck, I'm the only one here about to ask one, but uh, they might as well buy a new ship. It would be cheaper, I think, huh? <laughs> Saying uh, which, uh, how's he going to pay for all of this? Huh? I have 20,000 Republic Dactaris. Republic credits? 
Republic credits are no good out here. I need something more real. I don't have anything else, but credits will do fine. No, they won't. Credits will do fine. No, they won't! What, you think you're some kind of Jedi waving your hand around like that? I'm a Tidarian! My tricks don't work on me. Only money. No money, no parts, no deal. That's convenient. <laughs> he also... I'm very sure he also uses that trick to bang Anakin's mom. <laughs> so, yep, uh, oh, oh, Qui-Gon Jinn does use his Jedi mind trick more than once to trick people. Like, not... So, Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars movie uses a mind trick to trick space Nazis into letting them pass yes. through a city. Okay? Mm -hmm. Get them through a checkpoint. Uh, in, in this film, Qui-Gon Jinn uses it to try to cheat this this honest businessman out of a, you know, a deal, basically. Yeah. It's like, hey, I, I want to pay you with worthless money. Yep. Uh, he does this later on, or he does this earlier on to the uh, king of the uh, frog people, <laughs> Boss Nass, uh, to basically like, hey, you're going to give us a ship so we can head to the Naboo City, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I will agree with you. That is a flaw from our perspective. Yeah. I would argue that the film does not depict this as a flaw. In fact, I would think, I would argue that the movie itself is actually presenting this as a good thing that Qui-Gon is doing this. You know what I don't need? The police force to be able to mind control me. <laughs> it's, uh, he's a sleazy, sleazy character and he, I don't care what anyone says, is actually part Sith. No, no, legit. <laughs> I agree with you. Qui-Gon Jinn is a is a pretty bad Jedi. Yeah. Right? He does he does questionable things. He has yeah. questionable ethics and morals. Mm -hmm. However, I would also argue that presented in the context of the film, his ends justify the means. The movie does not present this as anything bad. No one brings it up to him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't question himself. No no one brings this up as a bad thing to Qui-Gon. I think the intention behind it, as far as Lucas is concerned, none of this was a problem. Sounds like Jedi privilege to me. I agree. I think, like, I hear you and I don't disagree, but also I disagree. I think that, <laughs> I, I agree, but I, like, on a different level. I believe that this is an obvious flaw, flaw, but not in a way that leads him to being this being a good protagonist, right? Like, there are obvious flaws of villains and everything, right? Like, that doesn't mean just because they have an obvious flaw that they are a good protagonist this or is, whatever. Yeah, these aren't, so these it's just, just like, so... I just wanted to point out he has obvious flaws, but they're not they're, representative. They're not of him. representative of him being a good protagonist. I agree. I, I don't want to give him that. Yeah. Now I will say this: there are a lot of people who are just a little younger than me who grew up, uh, you know, enjoying these prequel movies. Uh, they enjoyed these the like you know books and expanded media mm -hmm. and the Clone Wars TV show and you know those the people the creatives who made those products took this framework of Qui-Gon Jinn, who is sort of like a, you know, a, a Jedi with shades of gray, mm -hmm. right? And they were able to basically use that as a launching pad to tell interesting stories with Qui-Gon Jinn, right? Mm -hmm. They said, yeah, Qui-Gon Jinn does a lot of questionable things in this Phantom Menace movie. Let's, let's explore that. How do we that. justify this? Let's explore that. That sounds interesting. Those people made chicken salad out of chicken crap, <laughs> okay? Just because other people took a character and did interesting things with him in other stories does not mean that he is a good protagonist in this story I or even a good character. So I'm like, listen, you can like Qui-Gon Jinn as a character now based on all of the expanded media. You 
I will say, should not argue that he's a good character in The Phantom Menace because he's not. I agree. So that's a no on flaws. That's a no on development. That's a no on charisma. Speak. Hold on. Before we get into charisma, do you think he grows in any way? Qui-Gon, he doesn't, he doesn't learn anything. He doesn't change anything. He acts the exact same way at the start and at the end. He loses some weight <laughs> no, by no. all the blood leaving his body. <laughs> <laughs> right? No development for Qui-Gon. No, none, none for Qui-Gon. So that's a no. As far as charisma goes, I agree with you. Now, Liam Neeson, great actor, has charisma. Not in this film. Uh, in fact... Qui-Gon Jinn is so unrelatable to me because he like I'm like he doesn't do anything he doesn't react like he has no urgency he's not human yeah Th there's a great example here uh so Qui-Gon Jinn Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and Jar Jar Binks they're in an underwater like they're in a submarine mm -hmm. they're this underwater spacecraft type thing right uh, and they're being attacked by a giant fish right Jar Jar freaks the f out <laughs> as one would right <laughs> Qui-Gon Jinn, he's a cool customer the whole time. There's always a bigger fish. <laughs> he's like, he doesn't care. He's like, calm down. It's not a big deal. Chill out. Trust the force. Like, he's just... He's a cool customer. And it's like, I can't relate to that in the main character. No. It's like, how am I supposed to feel the urgency and danger uh, of the events going on if the main character is like just laissez-faire about it? Yeah. And he's just like, eh, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, even in Spy Kids, when they're being chased in their submarine, the parents, they're like figuring it out. But they are, there's clearly tense in there. Like, ah, oh, do. Yeah. So as I'm, I, I'm like, I'm not gonna give Qui Gon a charisma or a relatability to the audience <laughs> because man, he acts like he's just like this unmoved, like unfeeling sage. Higher you know? than anything else. Yeah. yeah, he's like the wizard you find on the top of a mountain. You get some wisdom from and you leave. Yeah. That being said, he learns nothing of the world. Agreed. Yeah. It's like, well, nope. And not really. It's like he, you follow him across Tatooine, you know, yeah. and like you. He he kind of asks questions, but it's like, yeah, not really. And it's like weird because like every discovery that's made that could have been like finding out like Anakin has the four, like it's kind of just said rather than like anything that you see that that he might have been like. He always he's hey, always in control. He's always like, it's like, oh, yeah, that, this makes total sense. I'm going to. Yeah. And then like even when the big reveal that Amidala is Amidala is Padme. And he like goes, oh, it's just like an eyebrow raise. It's and like, then that's oh, it. How about that? Yeah. And it's just kind of like, mm, bro. I agree. Die faster. <laughs> Anything else on that list? Um, he has social literacy no. only when he is um, thieving from people. <laughs> like uh, and OK, so the only thing we said that he definitely has agency over the story. He does, he does as much manipulating as Ovaltine <laughs> does. But he definitely does things. Yeah, but like choosing the right thing. Oh no. Yeah, no. 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 He so, makes he makes no important big choice other than like it's like nothing no no sacrifice not really. It's like Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. So then he gets 1 out of 8. Yeah. Qui-Gon's a horrible protagonist. Yeah. But he's also 
he has he the takes most, up the most screen time. Yeah, I was like, like, it's like screen time does also does not equal protagonist. Yeah, I feel like that's a that's like a contradiction or like that's a misconception. Yeah, screen time does not equal protagonist or love interest. <laughs> so yeah, man. Again, Qui-Gon, I'm going back to freaking Qui Gon's ratio. It is like you know his his protagonist level to screen time is like off the charts. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like Lucas was like, we need an adult on screen. Then maybe age up Anakin. Or make make Qui-Gon relatable. Make him a human being. He can't. He doesn't know what a human being is. I'm kidding, Mr. Lucas. I'm sure you've seen one. All right. Next up, Anakin Skywalker. All right. Now. Nobody relates to a four-year-old, so not relatable <laughs> to the audience. Well, hold on. Hold on. Okay. Now, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to argue. Again. I think Anakin is relatable because he's because an under... Because he's a slave? He's the what under... What do you know about being a slave, white boy? <laughs> he's an underdog. He, you can root for him, right? Like like Tom Holland, Spider-Man, right? Mm. He's he's a plucky underdog. Uh, you want to see him succeed because he's just like, you know, he's he's constantly put down. Mm-hmm. Life sucks, yeah. right? And Anakin describes like what, it, what it's like being a slave. You're a Jedi Knight, aren't you? What makes you think that? I saw your laser sword. Only Jedis carry that kind of weapon. Perhaps I killed a Jedi and took it from him. I don't think so. No one can kill a Jedi. I wish that was so. I had a dream I was a Jedi. I came back here and freed all the slaves. Have you come to free us? No, I'm afraid not. I think you have. Why else would you be here? I connect with his dream. Like, I I had a dream that, like, hey, I'm a slave. I had a dream that's, like, I got out of this life. I, you know, like, built myself up or something, and, and I came back home and freed the slaves. Right? Why aren't the Jedi freeing slaves? That's a good point. <laughs> but I'm like, you know, I, I used to read, like, old fantasy novels and stuff like that when I was a kid, like, fantasy mm-hmm. children's books and stuff like that, and, like, you know, the the young man who leaves his home behind, you know, basically grows, you know, goes out in the wilderness and, like, you know, builds himself up, you know, mm-hmm. gets strong, learns how to sword fight, you know, and then returns home to right or wrong. That's, that's like, Hero's Journey 101. Right. I connect with Anakin Skywalker's plight here. And that's why I think he's relatable to the audience um, as far as a core character goes. I will, however, argue that he has no charisma because he's a four-year-old. <laughs> and he, Jake Lloyd, we've seen him. He's a pretty good actor in Jingle All the Way. As a four-year-old. <laughs> he's pretty good. As a privileged four-year-old. Um, however, children need a very special hand to guide them in terms of director. Uh, these, these, these lines are hard to read with any conviction, especially when George Lucas is your director and you're four. That's true. So, but we all know who could have done it. He was just too old Spielberg. for the role. Spielberg. Oh, I thought we were talking kid actors. Oh, Corey Matthews could have done it. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think no to charisma. Yes to reli- uh, relatability as far as the character is concerned. I relate to his character. Here's the thing. I don't. Because those things that you're saying are very true. But because the charisma is not there and the connect the connection isn't made, right? So it's the same thing as like watching a movie... Uh, watching a horror movie and they put a dog in it and then kill the dog immediately because they want you to know that this monster is a monster. It's just there because of the like the automatic raw uh, emotion it's trying to drag from you because you're going to see that and be like, oh, 
it's such a sad life. So do you want to give it a half point then? No, I don't want to give it any no, point. No, no, you got to give it a half point. I don't want to give it any I'm point. I'm arguing for it. No. You at least got to give it the half point. You have to like listen through what I'm saying. I am listening through it. So why don't you agree with me when I'm right? <laughs> <laughs> so give him, a half, give him a half point on that. No, I've got the pen. Okay. But but do you you understand what I'm saying, yes, right? I do. Like where it's just kind of like, it's, it's a cheap shot. I agree. It's cheap pop. It's a cheap pop. Yes. But I do still think that the, 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 the core of the character, the 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 archetype that's presented, is relatable mm-hmm. because it's so universal. Okay. Um, like what else? Uh, d- does does oh. uh, obvious flaws? Yeah. Oh, are you? Sorry, no, no. I'm like, uh, like obvious. Fl- I was like, yeah, I think so. He's a liar. He's well. I mean, he's <laughs> he's he's poor. <laughs> that's fair. I was like, it's like he's poor. He's a slave. He's yep. down on his luck. Yep. He He's young. He's you know inexperienced of the world. Uh, he. All of those things. You yeah, are yeah, very right. Yeah, it was like maybe maybe not like all the underdog things. It's like material, flaws. like material stuff. But mm-hmm. like you know, he, he's got a heart of gold. Um, he's got a heart, I yeah. suppose. I don't know what color it is. <laughs> and I think we also like get to learn the world through him. We get to learn. I think he does a really good. Uh, he plays a really good role in being both the uh, tour guide for his portion of the first part of the movie, and then. All, um, being the, the fish out of water, the later. fish out of the yeah, water. Later, I agree. I, I was gonna say in terms of like introducing, he's he is the tour guide for everyone in Tatooine. He is. Yeah. He explains to the the other characters and the audience like what the world is all about, right? Mm-hmm. But first, we must acquire the parts we need. With none, nothing moolah to trade. These junk dealers must have a weakness of some kind. Gambling. Everything here revolves around betting on those awful races. Pod racing. Greed can be a powerful ally. I built a racer. It's the fastest ever. There's a big race tomorrow on Boonta Eve. You could enter my pod. Anakin, Watu won't let you. Watu doesn't know I've built it. You could make him think it was yours and get him to let me pilot it for you. I don't want you to race. It's awful. I die every time Watu makes you do it. But Mom, I love it. The prize money would more than pay for the parts they need. Speaking of pod racing, also, he's relatable to me as an audience member because uh, he's like the hero to get behind in terms of like the big sports race, right? Like the big action scene. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want to see him prevail, you know, because I know what the odds are against him. I know what's riding on him yeah. in that sequence. So, yeah. again, more- I think I will also, even in that clip, give him the like choosing the thing over himself because like he could be like, yeah, enter me into the pod race. Uh, you can get half your parts and the other half of the money will go to free myself and my mother. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> He's young boy though. So that might go with innocence more than like, you know, not really knowing how to bargain. No, he, he's a good, he has a good heart. For now. <laughs> Until Lucas says no heart. Uh, and then he does grow and develop in terms of like overcoming adversity, right? He earns his freedom. He, mm-hmm. he wins the big pod race. Yeah. yeah. He wins his freedom. That's what happens, you know. He didn't know he was winning his freedom, though. He doesn't. Will you take him with you? Is he to become a Jedi? Yes. Our meeting was not a coincidence. Nothing happens by accident. You mean I get to come with you and your starship? Anakin. Training to become a Jedi is not an easy challenge. And even if you succeed, it's a hard life. But I want to go. It's what I've always dreamed of doing. Can I go, Mom? Anakin, this path has been placed before you. The choice is yours alone. Hey, there's that choice. 
Oh. How about that? Look. So yeah, that's a that's a that's a check mark for that. For agency? No, for for choice. Oh. He makes the choice. He does make the choice. And uh I mean honestly, I think that that shows growth and development just in terms of, you know, like overcoming adversary adversity. Or half point even. <sighs> I don't want to Okay, so here's the thing. We're getting into nitty gritty. When I think about an arc or growth or development, right? He had no hand and he just happened to luck into. No, he had no hand in him going like part of the deal being you're free. That was all Waslo. What is his name? Watto. That was was Qui-Gon with Watto. Like, yeah. You know what else I want on top of this? This. Like, he didn't know he was fighting for his freedom. So he didn't like that was just like a happenstance for him. You know, fair, and then from there, right? Like, well, yeah, his, definitely his 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 all he already had the knowledge of how to fix things and how to like do stuff. So like, we don't really see him grow because we don't watch him train or do anything. It's true. I'm like thinking about like Luke Skywalker from the first Star Wars movie, right? Mm-hmm. Just like Anakin, he leaves Tatooine, he leaves his home behind, yeah, and he grows and learns about the world, and he becomes the hero. Mm-hmm. We don't really see Anakin become the hero besides like lucking into things. Yeah. I think you're right. Maybe. Yeah. Growth. Yeah. <laughs> growth, growth. No. Yeah. That's why I was like. Mm. All right. I, I think I agree with you there. He um, probably is social literacy. We see him with friends, but. uh, Yeah. He's friendly. Yeah. I, I think he he tries his best to make friends with everybody in the movie. You yeah. Know, Padme, Qui-Gon. Yeah. Not so much Obi-Wan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he and going back to the the the. The flaws thing. There is that scene later on where he meets the the Jedi Council in mm-hmm. Yoda. You know that Yoda. Yeah. Gives them a rundown. <laughs> your thoughts dwell on your mother. I miss her. Mm, afraid to lose her, I think. Mm? What does that got to do with anything? Everything. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. He's got much fear. Yoda, that was really stupid. <laughs> like, I'm sitting there thinking, like, you're afraid to lose your mom. You're four. This is the longest you've, the farthest you've ever been from your mother. The longest you've ever been from your mother. You, this, you were with a bunch of strangers. Obviously, you're afraid. And your mother is still in captivity. Fear breeds anger. Bro. How about you go and pay that man to free my mom? You have money. Well, so anyway, uh, I mean, we're going to take. Yoda, I have a lot of problems with Star Wars. I'm going to take Yoda at his word here. We'll just say that, you know, Anakin has some flaws that he does not overcome. I don't think he overcomes his fear for losing his mother. That's or whatever. true. He doesn't. So, yeah. Striking. That's true. All right. And so, last thing, last thing, as far as Anakin goes in agency over the story. If the movie was just the pod race sequence, mm-hmm. I would say, oh, yeah, that kid has the agency because he won that pod race himself. However, the second they leave Tatooine, Anakin gets like he gets the Obi-Wan treatment. He's got to sit in his chair. Yeah. Hey, wait for me. Anakin, stay where you are. We'll be safe there. But I stay in that cockpit. <laughs> That's it. He's told to just sit and wait. Mm-hmm. Well, the adults do the everything. Because he's a literal child. That's the problem. Yeah, he's got no agency over the story uh, for most of the film because yeah. everything happening is out of his control or understanding. Yep. So, yeah. What, what's, his, what's his final score then? He's got a three out of eight. 
Not very good. I thought he'd be stronger, but you know, three eight. <laughs> Did you give him a point for relatability? The three three and a half out of five, eight. He's got a three out of eight. Three and a half. All right. <laughs> now here's the big kicker, Jess. I thought she was joking, but literally as we were watching this movie and talking through this stuff, we're like, oh my gosh, is Jar Jar Binks the best protagonist by these metrics? Yes. Yes, he is. Now, we're going to make a lot of Star Wars fans mad because they <laughs> all hate Jar Jar Binks. We get it. Jar Jar Binks, is he relatable? Not really because he's he's an annoying cartoon rabbit, you know? Um... But also, isn't he relatable? Isn't he the one who's actually acting out when you see a big old fish coming for you? I guess isn't you're, he the one who's also like, "What do you mean?" He war? shows he shows fear and anxiety over the things that would make us fear fear. Isn't fearful he the one who chooses it. to go with people because of friendship <laughs> and um, stick with them during hard times? Isn't he the one who conquers uh, his fear of going back to the people who have outcast him? To do what was right for the people he was with. All right, I can dig it. <laughs> now, here's the real question, though. Is Jar Jar Binks charismatic? No. I don't think so. <laughs> he's he's very annoying, and I think that's his his worst flaw, is Jar Jar he Binks. He has obvious flaws. Yeah, but, like, the 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 annoying nature of him. Like, him just he's just so annoying. The accent, the mannerisms. He steps in poop, you know? Like he, <laughs> that's he, he that's on your stupid, list of annoying. He makes stupid decisions. Like, he, he is a farce. Yeah. And for that reason, I would say he's not charismatic in the a protagonist should be. Yeah. Right. He does have obvious flaws, so we give that to him. Yeah, he's he clumsy. many. He, he's clumsy. Yes. Oh, Cobra Fish. Why were you banished, Jojo? It's a long hotel, but uh, a small part of it would be Miss uh, uh, Clumsy. You were banished because you were clumsy. Uh, you so mightn't be saying that. Misa cause maybe one or two a little bit accidentate. You'd say, boom the gasser, then crash into Buster's hay liver, then vanished. Now, if, if that was intelligible, that might be more relatable to me as an <laughs> audience member. But the problem is, yeah, I, half of those things I don't understand what he's saying. The, the point is, he has flaws. He's clumsy. <laughs> uh, he, he breaks things on accident. He blew something up. Um, next on our list is uh, that they are learning the world, which yes. he, he definitely is. He is a frog out of water for most of the film. Mm -hmm. And he learned it very well um, because let's talk about an arc in growth, the development. <laughs> yeah. Jar Jar has the best arc in this movie because we, we just heard it. He's, he's, he's been banished from his home because mm -hmm. he's clumsy. And he made a fool of himself and people want to get him. They want to punish him. Right. right? And Jar Jar like, Lux into, you know, joining this band of Jedi mm -hmm. on this, you know, crazy adventure. At the end of the movie, they return home and Jar Jar is herald, heralded a hero. And he's he's basically put in place as a general. Yeah. This is uh, his the boss of his people. You saw doing grand. <laughs> Jar Jar bring Usen and the Naboo together. <laughs> no, no, no. So... We shall make you bombard general. General? That's development, bro. Yeah. He's he he went from a clumsy weirdo who was banished from his people to he earned acceptance from his people. And spoiler alert, he'll be a senator one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
not only that, he he is a successful war general. He saves the day for his people. Yeah. He he trips and falls a bunch. So but, you're saying he had agency? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he 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 made the choice. Yep. He made the choice over his own well-being to do what was good for an entire planet. Yes. Half of which his people had a racist fight against. <laughs> he did it for them as well. He did it for uni- unity of a whole world. He did. And he earned a place at the table. We skipped this one and he still gets it. Friends and social literacy. Uh, not, no. Nope. I get it. But he collects people and keeps them. He, as annoying as he is, his people may throw him out, but... And then, I guess you're right. Yep. Oh, that sucks. A prophet is not accepted in his hometown, but give him to some Jedi and the Padme and it'll be fine. My goodness. Yeah, so as much as we don't want to hear it, I think Jar Jar is legitimately the best in terms of protagonists. You got seven out of eight. Yeah. And you know it's a flawed film when the comic relief character is your closest thing to a real protagonist <laughs> i know that was a lot of work it was a lot of labor we just put in but that's what i'm getting at that is the phantom menace's biggest issue yeah the characters are bad <laughs> very very bad very very bad and they're the main character the people who are set up to be the main characters are very very much not main characters yeah and uh, the closest thing you have to main character is the joke car- character meant to make children laugh how does that make you feel? <laughs> I mean, I'm not a Star Wars friend, so I feel fine, except for the fact that I had to sit through and watch this. Man, that was a lot. But next topic on discussion here. Next topic. It's almost been two hours. I know. It's a big one. Oh, honey, we're going to need to speed these ones up. Let's All right. go. Let's talk about the politics of the movie, oh, because gosh. a whole third of this movie deals with the big political fallout. And we were asking important questions and I don't, we, have, we don't have to dwell too much on this because spoiler alert, the political plot of this movie doesn't make any sense at all. None. None of the choices made make any sense. But when do politics make sense? I think maybe that was part of the point, <laughs> but I don't want to give George the benefit of the doubt here. All right. Now again, the Trade Federation, Space UPS, they've been taxed by the Senate. And they retaliate by invading Naboo. A communications disruption can mean only one thing. Invasion. The Federation would not dare go that far. The Senate would revoke their trade franchise and they'd be finished. We must continue to rely on negotiation. Negotiation? We've lost all communications. And where are the Chancellor's ambassadors? This is a dangerous situation, Your Highness. Our security volunteers will be no match against the battle-hardened Federation Army. I will not condone a course of action that will lead us to war. So they invaded this planet, right? Mm-hmm. There, there, there are consequences. They mentioned it. You know, hey, hey, they, they could get their uh, trade license revoked or whatever, right? right? Why are they invading again? Um, I don't know. I was definitely listening. It's because. <laughs> It's it's because they're they're retaliating against being taxed, and Darth Sidious told them to. Okay. Now, there have been different occupations and invasions throughout history. Right. I'm gonna give you two examples here. Right. <laughs> in in World War II, Nazi Germany invaded Poland and other in other countries. Let's use Poland for example. They mm-hmm. occupied Poland, took mm-hmm. it over. Their goal 
was to take over their government and basically make Poland part of the German Empire, right? That was the whole goal. We're going to eat you. Right. You're going to be ours now. Mm-hmm. We are in charge of you. That's not what the Trade Federation is doing. They're, they want to make Naboo a, a distribution center? I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. And like the 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 Trade Federation guys, Viceroy Gunray is like, uh, is it legal to invade the planet? Nazi none, of, Ger- none of what you're doing is legal. Nazi Germany didn't care about the legality of invading Poland. They did it because they knew that they had superior military strength and they thought they could handle it. They were like, they didn't care if the other, you know, like Britain or America, like was going to try to stop them. It was like, no, we're better than them. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're just going to do it. Yeah. So I'm like, it, it doesn't make sense yeah. for why the trade federation would do this. Right. right. I'm like, are they going like, if I was Newton vice for gunray, I'd be like, yo, let's, let's take the queen captive. Let's take over her government, install puppets. Mm hmm. Uh, raid their vault? I don't know. <laughs> like, take their gold? Sir, I need you to stop trying to figure out planning coups. Uh, I don't want nobody to come for us. And then another occupation that happened, World War, mostly the the Russian Revolution, right? The Bolsheviks, <laughs> they rolled, they, they basically rolled into St. Petersburg and took over the, the, the Russian government. Mm-hmm. They basically forced the Tsar into abdicating his throne and they led him into exile, Right. I was like, that makes sense. The Bolsheviks, they don't want the czar to lead the country anymore. So mm-hmm. they just took it over. So I was like. Why didn't you do that? I was like, Trade Federation, just like lead the queen into exile. So when the queen runs away from, she leaves the planet with mm-hmm. the Jedi and leave. I'm like. The planet is yours now. I was like, Trade Federation, you won. <laughs> you won. I'm not happy about it, but, but you the, did. What are you doing? But the problem is they, they're so convinced that they need to make this invasion legal. Uh, and the the only way to make the the only way to make the invasion legal is to have the the queen sign a treaty. How will you explain this invasion to the Senate? The queen and I will sign a treaty that will legitimize our occupation here. I have assurances it will be ratified by the Senate. I will not cooperate. Now, now, your highness. In time, the suffering of your people will persuade you to see our point of view. Lock her up in the brig. Or when she leaves, it's like she's abdicated the throne. We win. We occupy the country. It's ours now. Mm-hmm. This treaty nonsense makes no sense at all. Yeah. And it's frustrating yeah. to me. <laughs> Knowing history. I was like, George, read a well, book. Well, in George's defense, this was a long, long time ago. They don't have our history. This is a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. And the funny thing is, once they get to the Senate and, like, they're able to, like, you know, talk to the politicians about everything going on in Naboo, like, the politics, every, the you know, the Senate is, like, gridlocked. Yeah. Like, they don't believe that Naboo has actually been occupied. And they're like, well, let's let's send a, you know, a, a team out there to assess you the situation. just sent a team. <laughs> they're here saying it is occupied. Well, and, and they don't believe it. So I'm like... <laughs> If I was this trade federation, I was like, no, we're successful. The Senate doesn't believe them. Yeah. Or they don't care. Yeah. So we we won. It's like when when the Bolsheviks took over the Russian government, you know, and set up the basically, you know, the what would become the Soviet Union or whatever, mm-hmm. right? It's like all of the other countries, they just said, yeah, it's fine. It's like <laughs> no one came to the Tsar's defense uh. to fight. And so it was just like, that's just what it is. It's like, hey, the Bolsheviks are in charge now. It's, and that's kind of what would have happened here. It's yeah. like the Trade Federation owns Naboo now. 
<laughs> and then, of course, there's this huge 20 minute long segment of the movie that's just set on the Senate planet of Coruscant, which mm-hmm. is the city planet. And it's the, it's the planet where all the kids go to sleep because everything that happens on this planet is all political dialogue that is like just in comprehensible <laughs> to children like, who want to okay. watch it in a space adventure Right. You get long scenes like this. The Republic is not what it once was. The Senate is full of greedy, squabbling delegates. There is no interest in the common good. I must be frank, Your Majesty. There is little chance the Senate will act on the invasion. Chancellor Valorum seems to think there is hope. If I may say so, Your Majesty, the Chancellor has little real power. He is mired by baseless accusations of corruption. The bureaucrats are in charge now. What options have we? Our best choice would be to push for the election of a stronger Supreme Chancellor, one who could control the bureaucrats and give us justice. You could call for a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum. I know what he said right there, and I was falling, like zoning out. Like I was just like, what, what, what happened? <laughs> I was going to say Ovaltine so- there sounds like... Um, Ovaltine. Tea. What? Palpatine. Oh, what did I say? Ovaltine. Same thing. Um, <laughs> he is sitting there. He, oh, he just sounds like he should be in, like, with my eyes closed, he just sounds like he should be in, like, a Regency film, like, freaking uh, Pride and Prejudice or something. But because it just sounds like he's reading from a letter. Mm, yeah, so uh, we should have a new Senate. Yep, yeah, just... Off, off, off. It, it's it's sleep. not engaging to children. It's not engaging to me, and I'm a child adult. And here's the thing. I want to give George a little bit here. Okay. Give I want to say, I would describe this as, I appreciate George's intentions mm-hmm. in writing this stuff, but he failed miserably on the execution, right? I was like, he wanted to make some, like, some political uh, commentary? commentary on, yeah. like, you know, the gridlock, the, you know, when you've got a, a system in government that just like isn't moving, mm-hmm. this is just squabbles and disagreements and like money in the courts and all that nonsense, right? right? Like, I get I get it. You could be frustrated with the government because like it's set up to just like get stalemated at all times, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like filibuster, right? Like freaking Ted Cruz can get up there and read green <laughs> eggs and ham for an hour. Uh, and that's how government works, apparently. He gets paid to do that, right? Uh, it's frustrating. Yeah. So I, I I'm like... You listen to Palpatine's speech there, and it's like, yeah, I can also be frustrated if my planet was invaded and the government is like has to go through like a thousand steps in order to assess the validity of the claims made, right? Right. I was like, I guess that's that's how government works. It's too slow. Yeah. Right. It's slow, and this your bureaucracy and all that stuff. However, the way it's presented here in this scene and scenes like it, not good, not engaging, no, uh, not exciting, Mm -mm. not well. Written or paced or uh, presented. Yeah, especially for people who don't really like politics and stuff like that. Like, the, you want something that's going to, like, going to stick in their heads for the duration of the film so that they can understand the underbelly of the thing that you're doing. And they don't understand the stakes either, yeah. right? I think throughout the whole movie, Queen Amidala is, like, complaining. It's like, my people are dying. They're starving. Even though it's been, like, three days. Yeah, <laughs> they shouldn't be starving. Um, and also even when she's like, it's just kind of dropped in there. It's not really like time spent on it. It's not shown at all. You, oh, yeah, you, you don't, don't see, see any Naboo people die or starve nope. in this time. 
that's a like show don't tell situation. Yeah. George is not showing us anything. No. He's just telling us, hey, people are dying out there. That's why all of this political stuff is so important. You could have just green screened them in. You would have liked that. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, show the people dying so that we can care about, we can feel Queen Amidala's like frustration. Yeah. Or feel Palpatine's frustration or yeah. something. And it's just so weird in Alien. No, it totally is. And I, I think that's just, I was like, we can, we can leave it there. That's, and again, that is a third of the movie. Yeah. Like the last act. It's so much of the movie. It's so much and it's incomprehensible. And Mr. Plinka calls it the planet of boring. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it is, as a kid, this is where you like, tone, you just zone out. You know, yeah. it's like as a little kid, remember watching this movie, it was like, they leave, they leave Tatooine after the big pod race scene. Then it's like a black hole of a movie <laughs> until they reach Naboo and they get the the climax, you right. know, the last action scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not good, man. I'm glad I never was put through this as a child. I mean, when it came out, I was not a child anymore. I mean, I was a child, but I wasn't like small and I got to choose what I wanted to watch. All right. So we've crapped on this movie for two hours. Oh, my gosh. Are we um, done? I want to end the conversation on one thing. Can we talk about some of the things that are actually good about the movie? The costuming's fun. The cost, the not just the costuming, the production design is praiseworthy. I agree. The money's the, all there. It's like in terms of sets and costumes, and you know the designs of the ships, and you know the art architecture, mm -hmm. the models. Yeah. Right? It's like hey, they use models. They real use real stuff. They went out and shot in these beautiful locations. Production design is great. Artistic design. Great. Yeah, I would wear several of Amadonald's, Amadonald's, um, McDonald's, Amadillos. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> I would wear several of Padme's queen outfits without the headdresses because some of them feel, and without the makeup, both of them feel very culturally appropriated. <laughs> Speaking but, of which, costume designer Trisha Bigger. And her team created over 1,000 costumes oh. inspired by various cultures. Well, a huge wardrobe department was set up uh, to create 250 costumes for the main actors and 5,000 for background ones. Dang. Did they get to keep those clothing? Probably not. Probably sitting in a warehouse somewhere I in London. I would steal the clothes. <laughs> I there are, There are two things in this movie that I would say I like say are like good moments in the movie. Mm -hmm. Number is one, pod race one of them? number one's the pod race. <laughs> Here's the deal. Like I said about professor wrestling earlier, right? It's, it's hard to get invested in a, in an action scene if you don't care about the characters. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the characters and plot around the pod race don't make a lot of sense. There's a lot of like gambling involved and like deals made on other deals. Right. And we were sitting there watching. I was like, why are you offering the ship as this? You put it up as collateral earlier. What are you doing? Right. It's, it's weird nonsense. <laughs> independent of all the stupidity surrounding it. Uh, the pod race sequence itself is really exciting. And if it was just its own Star Wars short film, it would have been a really, it'd be pretty dang good. Yeah. The pod race scene is the best part of this movie. I would say if you're going to watch anything, if you've never seen the Phantom Menace, skip it and just watch the pod <laughs> race. Like Just watch the pod race because that's it. But the great thing about the pod race scene is it's like, there's no score for it's three laps. There's no score for the first two laps, right? Mm -hmm. It's all just sound effects and, and like dialogue. And it's just right. like it 
Lucas was inspired by uh, Ben-Hur in the chariot racing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you can feel the old school Hollywood. It's like grand. It's an epic feel of this giant pod race, right? Yeah. It's like a mix between Ben-Hur epic filmmaking and NASCAR. <laughs> and my dad loved NASCAR as a kid, so I connect with it. Okay. <laughs> it, it It is really exciting. And I feel like I could really get behind Anakin Skywalker in that moment. Mm -hmm. The pod racing is excellent. And speaking for all the fanboys out there, I will agree the final lightsaber fight between Qui-Gon Jinn, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Darth Maul is very good. It is a highly choreographed, fun fight scene. It's mm -hmm. action pats, it's exciting. Uh, it's it's pretty well done. And there's like there's this really good sequence where Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are like separated by like force fields, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. it's like the force fields would like turn on and turn off. It's like, the most tension in the entire movie. Yeah. And it's like there's a point where they're all separated and Darth Maul is like standing on one side of a force field, right? And he's staring at Qui-Gon in the face. Pacing. And, and Qui-Gon just like sits down and like meditates, yeah. being patient while like Because he's above it all. <laughs> while while Darth Maul is like prowling around like a like a lion. Yeah. You know, so uh the the lightsaber fight is very good. Yeah. And very exciting. The problem is I don't con I don't connect with any of those three characters yeah. at all. So like a like a wrestling match where you don't know any of the people involved, uh, it's hard for me to get invested in the emotion of the fight. Yeah, but I do agree the it's, cool. it's a slick fight. Yeah, and it's really surprising that everybody lives through it. <laughs> Qui Gon dies. Spoiler. But the Red Man dies too, right? Darth Maul come. Well, apparently, <laughs> Darth Maul is back in these extended universe stuff. And I don't care. <laughs> Darth Maul is not a good character. How just like one person dies. Just like Qui-Gon. It's like maybe Darth Maul is a good character in all these like books and TV shows and comic books or whatever. He's not in this movie. He has, he has no, no character. Non-existent. He, words. I know he has dialogue. Oh, speaking of dialogue in this. So Ray Park plays uh, Darth Maul. Okay. Right? Ray Park is a martial arts champion with experience in gymnastics and sword fighting. He was originally just a member of the stunt crew. Hmm. Stunt coordinator Nick Gillard filmed Park to demonstrate his conception of what the lightsaber battles would look like in the movie. George Lucas and Rick McCallum were so impressed with the test tape that they gave Ray Park the role of Darth Maul there on the spot. Nice. Uh, however, his voice was considered too squeaky. Oh, no. And he was dubbed over in post-production by Peter Sarah Finovitz. Well, that's fine. I get all the money for being in it. Yeah, so anyway, I thought that was, that was interesting. But yeah, it's like, Lightsaber fight, it's slick. Yeah. It's well choreographed. It's cool looking. Uh, but I don't care about any of the characters. <laughs> That's it. That's all I care. Like, the score is good. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the CGI effects, like, hold up pretty well. Yeah. I was like, the the um, the pod racing scene holds up pretty well in yeah. terms of visu visual effects. Yeah. Can you remember any visual effects that didn't look good? <laughs> I feel like the spaceships. <laughs> remember, do you remember the shot of Jar Jar Binks? And he looked like falling he, like ragdoll simulation was bad. No, no. There's like a, a close up of him early in the movie. And we're like, oh, that looks like something from the PlayStation 2. Oh, yeah. Like it's probably one of, amongst the first time you see him when he's like about to get run over by some stampeding thing. Yeah. You're he like, looks oh, horrible. Yeah. And also all the stampeding things did not look great. But by and large, the special effects in the movie look pretty good. Yeah. For a movie in 1999, they look yeah. pretty good. So, yeah, there's stuff to enjoy about the Phantom Menace. And that's all we have to say about it. That is it all. Was all the good stuff worth no. price of admission? Do you recommend no. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace? No. <laughs> I don't either. 
Do not watch Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Um, <laughs> Just YouTube the pod racing scene. YouTube the pod racing scene. Pretend that's the movie. It's a short film <laughs> about Anakin Skywalker when he was a young boy. Uh, there's a thing called the, uh, I think it's called the machete cut of Star Wars or whatever. The machete. Uh, like for people you're introducing to Star Wars for the first time, tell them to watch Star Wars in this order. A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, then go back in time. Skip Phantom Menace altogether. Watch the pod racing <laughs> Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith. Then end it all with Return of the Jedi. Ah. Yeah. And I think that's that's, that's a pretty good way to watch Star Wars. I believe you. Do not. I'm not going to do it. Legitimately, though. of all the Star Wars movies released, Phantom Menace is the one I'd skip the most. Mm. Yeah, you're not. You're nothing. You miss nothing but the Metrochorians. <laughs> we haven't talked about Nope, the... we're not. Wrap it up. It's time for bed. All right. <laughs> that is The Phantom Menace. How was it received? Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace grossed more than $924.3 million worldwide during its initial theatrical run, becoming the highest grossing film of 1999 and the second highest grossing film worldwide and in North America at the time, just behind Titanic. Dang. And of course, it was the highest grossing Star Wars film at the time as well. Oh. Despite its financial success, the film was met with mixed reviews and has continued to polarize the fan base to this day. It has been praised for its visual effects, action sequences, musical score, and some performances, <laughs> but criticized for its screenplay, pacing, and characters. Fair. Of the positives, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer said the film was, quote, well-made and entertaining, and Time Out New York said, quote, the effects and production design are stunning. I agree. We can stand by that. Empire Magazine said, quote, there is still much pleasure to be had watching our full-blown Jedi guides in action. And with the duel between Darth Maul and the Jedi as, quote, the saga's very best lightsaber battle. I guess. May yeah, maybe. I, guess. I mean, at that point, yeah. Or yeah. is this is the are these contemporary reviews? Or I think this was at the time of the. Yeah. yeah, so I agree. Yeah. At the time, this was the best. Yeah. And Roger Ebert called it, quote, an astonishing achievement in imaginative filmmaking and said, quote, Lucas tells a good story, even if, quote, some of the characters are less than compelling. Grandpa. <laughs> is he grandpa again? Sir, put your monocles on. <laughs> of the negatives, Entertainment Weekly called The Phantom Menace, quote, haplessly plotted, horribly written, and juvenile. Correct. And Variety said The Phantom Menace, quote, is neither captivating nor transporting, for it lacks any emotional pull as well as the sense of wonder and awe that marks the best works of sci-fi fantasy. Double correct. Triple correct, even. Uh, speaking of Metachlorians, particular criticism was aimed at the introduction of Metachlorians as an explanation of the Force. We're not going to get into it, but basically, the Force, the magic that the Jedi use, yeah. it's caused by microscopic organisms that live in your blood. It's COVID. <laughs> it's dumb. Uh, other criticism was aimed at the perceived racial stereotypes present throughout the film. Because, you know, Jar Jar might be perceived as like a black minstrel stereotype. Mm. Watto is kind of a Jewish stereotype. Mm. Uh, the, the the Trade Federation dudes are Asian stereotypes. Yeah, these are things. These are things that are. Yep, mm -hmm. yep. The Phantom Menace, however, was nominated for three Academy Awards. Whoa, for best, what? <laughs> best sound effects editing, mm -hmm. best visual effects, mm -hmm. and best sound. All three went to the Matrix, though. <laughs> uh, good job, Matri D. It did, however, win two Saturn Awards for Best Costumes and Best Special Effects, yeah. the MTV Movie Award for Best Action Scene, and a Young Artist Award for Jake Lloyd's Performance. 
He won mm. an award for that. <laughs> I don't know that I agree with that, but you know, good job, Jake Lloyd. The film received seven Golden Raspberry Award nominations, including Worst Picture, Worst Director, Worst Screenplay, Worst Supporting Actor for Jake Lloyd, and Ahmed Best, played Jar Jar. Worst wow. Supporting Actress for Sofia Coppola, who I, I guess was like a background character somewhere. <laughs> they just like to throw under the bus. <laughs> worst Screen Couple for Jake Lloyd and Natalie Portman. Were they supposed to be a screen couple in this first episode? Are you an angel? Fine, but ew. Uh, Ahmed Best did win the Razzie for Worst Supporting Actor. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes you just need work. Yeah, I was like, Ahmed Best got a lot of hate for this. He yeah. does not deserve it. It's not his fault. No. He did fine with the material given. Yeah. So leave Ahmed Best alone. Yeah. He was, he was the protagonist, and that was the intention. All right. And what of the legacy of the Phantom Menace? Now, we're not talking the legacy of Star Wars because, hey, guess what? We're going to talk about Star Wars again sometime down the road. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just going to list off some of the legacy of the Phantom Menace itself and its iterative works. Okay. All right. The 2011 Blu-ray release of the Phantom Menace replaced the Yoda puppet with a CGI model, making it consistent with the other films in the prequel trilogy. And that was like a lot of flack gets thrown at the Star Wars special editions for adding like CGI nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a good choice. Yeah. Uh, that's that yeah, Yoda puppet in that first movie. Well, not bad. Not good. Yeah. Yeah. So... CGI, good. <laughs> in 2012, The Phantom Menace was converted to 3D and re-released in theaters. Thanks to the pre-release, the film's worldwide box office gross now exceeds $1 billion. Whoa. People like to say that that um, 3D re-release didn't do as well, and that's why Lucasfilm decided not to release the other movies in 3D. Mm -hmm. But I think the truth is, this was around the time where Disney bought Star Wars, uh. and they just kind of put the pulled the plug yeah. on the Star Wars 3D re-releases. Also, yeah. 3D movies were at a bash. out, yeah. yeah. The Phantom Menace has spawned a novelization, a Scholastic Junior novelization, two young reader novel series, a four-issue comic book adaptation, and a 2017 graphic novel. Oh. The Phantom Menace alone has spawned at least nine video games. Whoa. Including a licensed pinball machine, Star Wars Episode One: Battle for Naboo, Star Wars Obi-Wan, Star Wars Episode One Racer and Star Wars Super Bomb Bad Racing. Do you think we could fit a pinball machine in here? No. <laughs> also, Star Wars Bomb Bad Racing is like Star Wars' answer to Mario Kart. Oh, wow. You want to play as no Jar Jar Binks with a big head? Mm -hmm. You can. Also, but Star Wars uh, Pod Racer uh, is actually really good. I played. You played it with a lot with Michael. Yep, I had no, it on Derek. Both of them. Oh, I had it on the N sixty four. It was very good. You placed a Bulba and you had a flamethrower. <laughs> and that's not to mention the film's massive $20 million advertising campaign with promotional licensing deals with Hasbro, Lego, Tricon, Global Restaurants, and PepsiCo, just to name a few. So yeah, it's like when there, whenever there's a Star Wars movie, there's a huge promotional campaign. And oh, every, yeah. Every Everybody product, wants a piece of that. Every product known to man has Qui-Gon on it or Whoever. Yoda, Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker, everyone. Yeah. And that's... Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Woo! Uh, last order of business. Who won? I'll give you four guesses. <laughs> You're only gonna need one. Ten though. things I hate about you, one, folks. It's it's obvious. It's very obvious. And if you have to, anything to say different, kids, you're grounded. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, <laughs> throw the Phantom Menace in a fire. <laughs> Don't worry, it'll come back. It always comes back. That's the end of our show. 
Oh my gosh. We gotta uh, push through. What do we got? What's what's next on our agenda? Oh, runners up. Gotta talk runners up. Hey kids. Did I sound energetic? <laughs> hey kids. Let's talk about what could have been our things we could have watched and not been here for two and a half hours. Chima knee. Yep. I know it's not going to be that long, but it might be. It's Star Wars. <laughs> We've got to do this two more times. All right. So for you, my love, if we were not watching Star Wars episode one, whatever, we would be watching. We could be watching Tarzan. Oh, Disney's Tarzan. Yeah. Best music in the Disney movie. It's got a Phil Collins. It's pretty good. I like, I didn't watch it in the theater. We didn't have it on VHS tape. We, I've only seen it like in passing when other people want to watch it. We should watch it. It's have good. Have you never watched it all the way through? No, I have. Okay. Of course I, why would it be a runner up if I hadn't seen it all you the way know, through? Don't yell at me. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I like the, the, the NSYNC song. Those aren't the words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also could have been watching The Matrix. Ah, now that's the best one of the best movies in 1999 for sure. It's like, I would have much rather watched the matrix than star Wars, but such is life. I probably would have too. I've only seen it once and I don't think I've ever seen it all the way through. And it's the only one I saw. Neo is a good protagonist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you say so, uh, or we could have been watching fight club. Also a great movie. No, le legit. That, that movie is excellent. And, uh, definitely was very formative in, uh, my life as like a, like, you know, I, His I saw his name the, is Robert Paulson. No, I saw that movie as a teenager and it kind of like helped inform like my view of consumerism and, uh, you know, just toxic masculinity and yeah. stuff, you know, you like, got it. You yeah. Did. And then I watched it again in college for a Marxist literature class. Mm -hmm. And like, you just see so many levels that we, we read the book. Um, yeah. Fight club is excellent. Yeah. Uh, it also, you know, a lot of dumb people read too much into it and or, or didn't read enough into it and they thought Tyler Durden was a good person. They made uh there's a Korean drama called Bad Crazy Bad and Crazy that is a remake of Fight Club and oh. I want to watch it with we you. We probably now. should. That sounds interesting. <laughs> I'm excited. Lee Dong Wook is in it and he's anyway. Um yeah, so that's what we could have been watching for you. For me. <sighs> It's not that I didn't like what we watched, but looking at this other list, I de the whole list, I definitely, for some of these, had to like flip a coin. Um, but we could have been watching She's All That. Have you seen She's All That? Is that with Amanda Freddie Bynes? Freddie Prince Jr. Oh. It's Amanda Bynes in 99? I don't know. <laughs> she's All That? Yeah. Maybe I'm th she's You're the man. she's the man. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Okay, well, Is it's Matthew Lillard in it, too? Yes. <laughs> Why are they always in movies together? <laughs> They're friends. Um, okay. So we also could have been watching Dogma, which you saw recently, yep. like a, a couple of years ago. I'm not a big fan of Kevin Smith, but we, we did watch Dogma and I was like, it's pretty good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, we also could have been watching Galaxy Quest, which I love. I love Galaxy Quest. I would have like I, I remember watching Galaxy Quest for the first time around the, around when it released on VHS tape, like a kid's birthday party. Mm -hmm. Like and I was like, yeah, it was fun. It was so much fun. It's such a it's that would have been a much better space movie. It's true, and it, it it's it's also a movie that you you appreciate even more having watched like Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the gags are so much fun. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that that those are those are all the runners up. <laughs> it's like 
there were a lot of really good sci-fi movies released in 1999, and, and we, we watched the watch. worst one. Uh, uh, <laughs> All right, let's close out with some plugs. I'll, I'll carry let's the. Let's close uh, out with a prayer for my soul. I'm so tired. All right, I'll carry the weight. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Media Mate Show. We host polls and videos and clips and pictures and all the fun stuff uh, to supplement your viewing experience. So if you want to see all like stuff about Tensing They Hate About You or The Phantom Menace, you know, we'll share it with you there. Yeah. As for helping the show, you can do a few things. You can follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Leave us a review. Give us five stars. That's very helpful. Mm-hmm. As for mm-hmm. me personally, you can follow me on Twitter at Rod the Master. That's at Rod the Master. I host a wrestling podcast called Keep Kayfabe. That's K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. We talk about we talk all about our favorite professional wrestlers. So if you like wrestling, check that out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you can check out a website I write for called ZeldaDungeon.net. We write all about the video game series, The Legend of Zelda. So if you like Zelda, you check that out. Mm-hmm. You have anything you want to plug? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I will give it to you. Uh, with that, that is the end of our show. And uh, we are very, very tired. But Star Wars is a beast. Yeah. And the Phantom Menace needs to be dissected slowly, like a frog. <laughs> All right. So we're going to close out with another great thing to come out of the Phantom Menace. Another good thing. Uh, that is the song, The Saga Begins by Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, gosh. It is a parody of American Pie done to the plot of the Phantom Menace. The story goes that Weird Al was able to write the song before the movie came out because he knew... Because he had read spoilers on the internet. <laughs> but he paid extra money to watch an early screening of the film so that he could verify that his facts were correct. Nice. So, yep, we're going to end with that. And uh, we'll see you all next time with our music of 1999. And remember, kids, you're only one clumsy explosion away from being the protagonist of your own story. We started singing my, my, the Anakin guy. Maybe Vader someday later, now he's just a small fry. Jedi